Lord, we pray for your blessing this morning as we continue to work through the book of Psalms, a wonderful part of the Old Testament to read and exegete. And we pray for your guidance and help and assistance to make these Psalms real and alive to thy children. And we pray for thy blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. amen. Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 1, you haven't got a name attached to it, so you are to wonder, speculate as to who wrote the first psalm. As far as I am concerned, it makes no difference to me. I have no idea who wrote 1 Kings or 2 Kings, 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. Same would be true of Hebrews. We don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. Could have been Apollos, could have been Paul, uh, could have been Barnabas. We don't know. Paul would be the obvious choice, I know. But what I do know is that these are the words of the living God. I can't explain it to you. If you don't concur with me, that's between you and the Lord. It's like the Bible issue. I can't explain why the King James is the Word of God. Of course, there are scholars who can, but you either know something to be so or you don't. You either know that God is God or you don't. You either know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh or you don't. And the same will be true of the Word of God. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Vain like empty, like worthless. And you think of that disgusting song written by john lennon imagine there's no heaven well how about imagining there is a heaven and imagining there is a hell always be suspicious of people who push for this or push for that if i was pushing for 24-hour drinking uh for example or 24-hour gambling for example or this or that you may say is that guy a liberal why is he pushing for it well he's pushing for it because he believes in it people who push for the uh, lowering of the age of consent are pro-it People who push for homosexual rights like LGBT or greater interfaith dialogue are for it. They are either closet homosexuals or closet liberals. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? This is very prophetical. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Keep your hand there and go to Amos. Chapter 5, Amos was a herdsman, not a prophet. In fact, many of the prophets in Scripture were just ordinary people, a bit like the apostles, for the most part, ordinary people. Most of the apostles were fishermen. Paul, of course, would be the exception. Dr. Luke would be the exception. But all of the others were just ordinary people. Amos 5, Amos 5, look at verse 10. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor them that speaketh uprightly. They hate him, the Lord Jesus Christ, a man despised, acquainted with grief, that rebuketh in a gate. Whoever controls the gate controls the government, of course. And they abhor him, they hate him, that speaketh uprightly. This is a prophecy around 700 BC concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. One more time, Amos 5.10. They hate him that rebuketh in a gate. Who would be the hey, or who would be the they? The they would be the Jews, of course. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, that's you and I, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Go back to Psalm 2, verse 1 again. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Heathen, like infidels. What do the Muslims call us? Kufa. They say you are Kufa. They say you don't know what you are talking about. You have no belief in the God. And of course Allah means the God. But here, Psalm 2, this is dealing with not the Gentiles per se, which you might think it would be, but it's dealing with another group of people. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Vain, like empty, like I say, worthless, imagine, like to plot, to plan, 
going back to conspiracies. Verse 2 again. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Counsel. We touched on this last week. Council of Trent, Council of Nicaea. Councils in scripture, never a good thing, always a negative thing. Take counsel together against the Lord, the Father, and against his anointed, his Christos, Messiah, being Jesus, of course, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We won't be told what to do. We are free, they say. We have nobody to own us, to boss us about. Go to Luke chapter 19. A conspiracy has been found. A conspiracy has been exposed. You think of Joseph, for example. He was... Uh, sold to the Ishmaelites. His brothers would conspire to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. A picture of the Jews selling Jesus to Herod. Ishmael was Abraham's illegitimate son. And of course Herod was Israel's illegitimate king. We call these types and shadows. Luke chapter 19. Luke uh, chapter 19. Uh, look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying... We will not have this man to reign over us. His citizens hated him. Jews, of course. And sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. It's a throwback to Cain and Abel. It's a throwback to Joseph's brethren. He tells us we are going to worship him. He tells us our parents are going to worship him. He tells us that these stars and moon are going to be in submission to him. And they won't put up with that. But his citizens hated him. His citizens not another group of people. His citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew uh, chapter 27. I need to be careful when I turn these pages. My Bible is well over 100 years old. If I turn too quickly, I will tear it. I've torn I've torn many pages in scripture, I'm ashamed to say, and I've got sticky tape to try and repair the pages. Uh, but I like this Bible, it's easy to hold, it's not particularly heavy, and I've got a lot of footnotes uh, in my Bible. Matthew 27, Matthew 27, look at verse 25. Then answered all the people, and said, His blood be on us and on our children. All the people. This is a conspiracy, this isn't just some, this is the vast majority then answered all the people and said, His blood, precious blood, the blood of the Lord, of course, His blood be on us and on our children. And of course it was. Indirectly, Second uh, Peter chapter 2 says, He died for those that would reject Him. There's no such thing as limited atonement. Go to John uh, chapter 19. But of course those words are infamous. Those words would result in the Jew being dispersed. Uh, you think of 70 AD. You think of the, te uh, the temple being burnt to the ground. Uh, but before that took place, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and they starved the Jews. Many Jews went into slavery uh, after 70 AD. And of course, once a temple went down, all of their records were destroyed. Genealogies were uh, destroyed forever. Who begat who? We don't know. And now if you say to people or if you speak to a Jew today and you say, what tribe are you from? They have no idea what tribe they are from. They don't know. God knows, of course, but mankind does not know. John 19, 14, and it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Pontius Pilate, Behold your king, Eche Homo. Behold your king, bit of sarcasm. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Shall I crucify your king? Really rubbing it in, you see. The chief priests, always the priests, isn't it? 
The chief priests, not just ordinary priests, the chief priests, answered, We have no king but Caesar. Pretty clear, isn't it? Go back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 again. Why do the heathen rage, infidels, pagans, savages? And the people imagine a vain thing. Going back to the Jews refusing to bend the knee to King Jesus. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Pilate and Herod, partly in the picture here, and also Caiaphas and his son and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Jewish governments, if you will. So you've got Jew and Gentile coming together and breaking a commandment, a trans-testimonial commandment, making it very clear that God's people should be separated. The Jew was to dress a particular way. A Jew wasn't even allowed to trim his beard. A Jew wasn't to eat whatever he wanted to eat. He couldn't eat pork especially. And here you've got Jew and Gentile teaming up together against the Lord, verse 2 being the Father, and against his anointed, being Christos, Messiah, Messiah, or Yeshua HaMashiach, as our Messianic friends like to say, saying, let us break their bands asunder. Trinity, they. Let us break their bands, Father and Son, asunder. Break their bands from us and cast away their cords from us. We won't be told what to do. We are free. They would have you believe. Go to John chapter 8. Most people today think they are free. Most people today think they have rights to march and uh, cause a lot of damage. They feel they have a right to say this or say that. And of course the media and the print press and apostate politicians and apostate priests will say, yes, you have the right to do this and the right to do that. You have no rights. If you are a Christian, you are a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are owned by him. I mean, literally owned by him. He controls you. The Holy Ghost lives inside of you. And if you yield to the Holy Ghost, you will get more freedom, if you will. But if you are unsaved, you have no rights per se. You may have to pay taxes in this life. That's a right. That's a statement of fact. And uh, when you die, you have the right to be judged. But that's about all. John 8. John 8. Look at verse 33. They answered him, the Jews, We be Abraham's seed. Yes, that's true. And were never in bondage to any man. Not true. Under the cosh of the Romans, when this was written. Short memories, you see. Short memories. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? What are you talking about, Jesus? You are a young travelling rabbi. And we can't do much about what you are saying and doing. Crowds follow you all over the place. We are very jealous of that. And today, if you get a good, strong group of Bible-believing Christians coming together, worshipping the Lord in spirit and in truth, reading from the King James Bible, you have quite a crowd on your side. You have a good group of people. And of course, the apostate churches are very jealous of that because they are struggling to fill the pews. Then answered him, We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. Not true. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin... Is a servant of sin. I'd love to hear a preacher say that today. I'd love to hear a priest say that today or a vicar say that today. I would love to see a Jew get up and say that today or a mullah get up and say that today. They won't, of course. They tread a very fine line, you see. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. So the offer was made time after time. If you Continue my word, you shall be free, and the truth shall set you free. But of course, man doesn't want to be free. Joseph's brothers didn't want to be told what to do. Their youngest brother, rule over them. No way, they said. We are older than Joseph. We won't be told what to do. And of course, you go back to Cain and Abel. And the Lord said to Cain, if you do what is right, you will rule over your brother Abel, because you are older than Abel. And Cain got jealous, killed his brother. Joseph's brothers got jealous, and indirectly killed him. 
but not physically, of course. They sold him to slavery. The Ishmaelites, Abraham's illegitimate seed, got a hold of him. Like I say, in type, picture of uh, Pontius Pilate and King Herod getting their hands on the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2.4 He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision, contempt, mockery, scorning. So while this is going on, Psalm 2.1, uh, Psalm 2.2, 2, Psalm 2.3 God is up in the third heaven, triune God laughing he's laughing most people don't like to think about the lord laughing at someone uh if you have children you probably raise your children to not laugh at other children right you probably said to your children it's not nice to laugh at a child such and such if child such and such isn't able to do what you do or if child such and such isn't uh, particularly nice you shouldn't laugh at child such and such and that's true of course but here the lord is laughing and he's laughing in the third heaven and he has them unbelieving jews in derision He's got them running around in absolute spin. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Heavens plural. There are three heavens. Muhammad said there were eleven. No, there are there are three heavens. Paul went up to the third heaven, uh, and of course, what he saw was partly pictured in Revelation as well to what John saw. So Paul and John got a glimpse of the third heaven, and of course, you've heard me use this analogy before. But uh, the birds in the air are flying in the second heaven. Outer space is third heaven. And of course, us on the earth, we are in the first heaven. One more time. He that sitteth, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Keep your hand there and go to Acts chapter 4. Like I said last Sunday, around 75 Psalms were written by King David. Uh, Moses would write some, of course. Ezra, others perhaps. Uh, but a good number of uh, the Psalms, we have no author for them. Makes no difference to me. I know that I'm holding the words of the living God. If you love me, keep my words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I can't explain that to you. I can't explain to you why the King James is God's infallible word. You either believe it or you don't. You either believe there is a creator or you don't. You either believe that Jesus Christ is God, manifest in the flesh, or you do not. You either believe that God is three in one, one in three, and the one in the middle died for me, or you don't. I can't help you to understand that. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, look at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Priests again. If you were to poll people in your town and say, what do you think about priest such and such or vicar such and such or priests in general or the papacy in general, most people would say, nice guy the Pope. Priests, yeah, nice people. And those poor Catholic priests, they can't marry have to be bachelors forever. Those poor nuns can't marry, have to be spinsters forever. Most people have a very uh, compassionate view when it comes to people of the cloth. But that's not what scripture tells us. And being let go, Peter and John, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them, like, be quiet. Stop preaching about Jesus. And that's what we hear today. We are told, don't preach about Jesus. We can preach about this, we can preach about that, but we can't preach about Jesus. And if you preach about Jesus at work, you are suspended. Sent home, perhaps on half pay. A tribunal will be held some months later, and chances are you could be dismissed, fired. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by thy mouth of thy servant David hast said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? You're told that David wrote Psalm chapter 2. But you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't gone to Acts chapter 4. Scripture with scripture. One more time from 24. And when they heard that, the early church, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. 
One accord, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one new birth, one rapture, one second advent. And said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that in them is, everything without exception, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? He got Jews, saved Jews, referring to unsaved Jews as heathen, infidels, savages, kufa, if you will. And David is the author here of Psalm 2. Look at 26. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. It's almost word for word from Psalm 2. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. So of course Pilate and Herod had secret police, predominantly a Gentile, working very closely with the Jewish elites. And of course the term here, holy child, uh, found over in uh, 27 is changed in your new Bibles. And also it's repeated in verse 30. They say holy servants. But of course holy child is better because you need to have faith as a child in order to be saved. 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Two counsels. The counsel of the Lord, which will stand. Contrast that to the counsel of mankind. Trying to overthrow, undermine the Lord's will. And now Lord, 29. Behold, their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word as a timeless prayer. By stretching forth thine hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Now of course this is uh, during the book of Acts testimonial time. For today there are no sign gifts per se because the Jews are entitled to a sign. This is of course way back in Acts chapter 4 around 30 AD. But again holy child Jesus going back to you have to... Be like a child in order to be saved. But your new Bibles change that to holy servant, which doesn't really tell you anything. 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. No speaking in tongues. Did you notice that? They want a fresh anointing. I need it. Patrick needs it. We all need it. A fresh anointing to get onto the streets, preach the gospel, get the banner up, pass out tracks, keep preaching. Preach and preach and preach while there is still air left inside of you. But one final time. 425. Who by the mouth of thy servant David. Inspiration. And of course David, type of Christ, has said. Why did the heathen rage? Psalm chapter 2. And the people imagine vain things. Vanity. Like plotting something. We want, we shan't have this man to reign over us. The kings of the earth stood up. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. And against his anointed. Still goes on to this day. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand, and thy counsel determined before to be done. This is all in the hand of the Lord. This goes back to predestination. This goes back to what we call middle knowledge, which is a very difficult subject to uh, explain. But very briefly, God looks from eternity past into eternity future. And he sees people like myself, people like Patrick, people like you, people like us. And he knows how we will handle situation A, B and C. And depending on how we handle situation A, B and C, will de will determine how he responds to how we handle situation A, B and C. And of course, he knew that the Jews would turn against Jesus and the Gentiles would work with the Jews to overthrow Jesus. So therefore, a additional plan was put into place, like by Acts chapter 7, with the Jews rejecting the Lord one third, uh, one final time when Stephen was being uh, stoned to death. That was the 
closure, or that was the sealing of Israel's fate. It goes back to 1 Samuel 8, when the Jews would reject God the Father. It goes back to Matthew uh, 27, when the Jews would reject Jesus. We just looked at that. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And it comes to a finale, a final crescendo in Acts 7, when the Jews would reject the Holy Ghost. And after they would do that, the Lord says, okay, fine, I will suspend the thousand-year reign, which could have been initiated had the Jews turned to Jehovah. Acts 7, no church age, of course, straight into uh, the thousand-year reign. You may have had the tribulation, perhaps, the seven-year period, and that would have ended, of course, in 70 AD. But that was suspended. The tribulation was suspended. The thousand-year reign was suspended. And, of course, the church age came in. Plus of a brief crash course when it comes to middle knowledge. 29, and now, Lord, behold, their threatenings, threatening the Jews to be quiet, whipping Peter and John. Uh, we won't have this man's blood on us, they would say. And grant unto thy servants, that's you and I, that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal. Now, we can't heal people physically today. We can heal people spiritually. If somebody comes to the Lord and says, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, was buried, and after three days was raised from the dead, we can say to such a person, if you believe that and you truly have trusted in that, you are saved. And you may get some, well, you will get, you will get some spiritual healing, and you may perhaps get some physical healing, but it's not necessarily guaranteed. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. So you've got two dispensations going on here, going back to Psalm 2, which also has double application, and I'll explain that more next week. But here, healing is promised in verse 30, uh, due to the name of thy holy child Jesus, which your new Bibles has changed to uh, thy holy servant Jesus, which means nothing like I say. And 31, one final time. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. No tongues. Only once would the tongues come down from heaven. Only once would it fall on the apostles, all being men, not women. And on top of that, there were known languages, I think 11 from memory. And the, the apostles were given the gift of speaking in tongues as a sign to unbelieving Israel. Psalm 2, look at verse 4 again. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He'll mock you, he'll scoff you. The Lord shall have them in derision. Go to Proverbs uh, chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. For the Lord to mock somebody, for the Lord to laugh at somebody... Uh, isn't particularly nice, not very comfortable, I know. Uh, but of course, the Lord would use sarcasm. Jesus Christ would use sarcasm. Uh, he would say that Herod was a fox. He would say that the Jews were a generation of vipers. And this goes back to the seed of the serpents, a controversial doctrine found over in Genesis chapter 3. Basically, Satan will beget a seed. Uh, and of course, the Savior would also beget a seed. But of course, the Saviour's seed is spiritual, whereas some believe that the serpent's seed is literal. And if I get time, I will briefly touch on that this morning, although more likely next week. Proverbs uh, chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 24. Because I have called, and you refused, Acts chapter 4, Psalm chapter 2. Came unto his own, his own received him not. We shine this man to reign over us. I've stretched out my hand, and no man regarded it. This guy's a carpenter. Where's he born? No prophet came out of Galilee. Uh, John 8, and of course they got that wrong, didn't they? Because Jonah came out of Galilee. Sometimes you can be too educated. Sometimes you can know too much. What do they say? A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. 25. But ye have said at naught, all my counsel. There's our word again, counsel. But this is God's counsel. 
but you have said at naught all my counsel, like nothing, it means nothing to you, and with none of my reproof, dismiss me. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, great white throne, when your, uh, when your fear cometh as des uh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. So at the great white throne judgments, the terror will be absolutely horrific to even uh, contemplate. People are going to be wanting, perhaps hoping, that it won't be too bad for them. And of course the worst is still to come. But if you go through the history of mankind, you go back to 70 AD, like I say, 70 AD, Titus decided to put a ring around Jerusalem. He decided to force the Jews to their knees. A lot of terrorists were uh, being raised up at the time. People like Judas Maccabees and guys like him. And Titus said, I'm going to put a ring around Jerusalem. And he did that. Many were starving to death. Then he got the uh, torch out, started to light the temple. Not himself, of course, one of his renegade soldiers. Those that didn't uh, burn to death were then sold into slavery, Roman slavery, and off they went into captivity. Fast forward to World War II, we touched on this very briefly last week. Millions of Jews went through death camps all over Europe. And of course, this took place in Russia as well. Uh, Stalin killed all of his Jewish doctors, was obsessed with the Jews, and many Jews suffered terribly in Russia and in Germany, basically simultaneously. But who knows about that from the Russian's perspective? We all know about it from the German, but how about the Russian perspective? By 1945, you had 200 death camps in Russia. 200. That's 20 times more than what you had in Germany, Poland, and elsewhere. And you had Jews and death camps all over Europe. El Shaddai, El Elyon, all praying out to the Lord in their own tongue, calling on his name, Adonai, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Jireh, using their own mother tongue, and the Lord closed his ears. You turn from the Lord, he turns from you. And when he turns from you, you are ruined. I also will laugh at your calamity. 26. I will mock, I will mock, when your fear cometh, Jehovah speaking. Cross-reference to Psalm 2. This is a Jewish book that I'm reading. This isn't aimed at the church, per se. It's aimed at his own people. When your fear cometh, 27, as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Anguish, what a terrible word. Anguish, anxiety, absolute despair. Then... Shall they call upon me, Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Jehovah Shalom, Yeshua Hamashiach. Well, of course, he will hear that, of course, but you won't hear the other prayers. But I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge. Knowledge. Jesus Christ is a personification of wisdom and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They would none of my counsel. They despise all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way. You reap what you sow, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso, this is positive, but whoso hearkeneth unto me, shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. Most of, the, uh, most of the material in the book of Psalms is prophetical, and like I said last Sunday, a good part of this will cover the second advent, tribulation, a thousand year reign. Let's go back to Psalm 2 and break it down a bit more. Why do the heathen rage? Acts chapter 4. And the people imagine a vain thing. This is a prophecy concerning Israel's rejection of her Messiah. The kings of the earth sit themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. First advent. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. We believe that Pilate would commit suicide. Caiaphas, from memory, would die, I think, five or six years after Christ's death. 
and by 70 AD the Jews are no longer a people of God. The temple went down, they were dispersed, they would travel the world, and that's where the term the wandering Jew comes from. Every country in Europe didn't want them. Cromwell was one of the first to bring them back to Britain, but France, Spain, Italy said, no, we don't want the Jews back in our land. They are troublemakers. And I called a bit of a documentary this morning, only briefly, of course, it was pretty early this morning, about the Six-Day War, 1967. Moshe, Moshe, Dayan, Dayan, one of Israel's greatest uh, military men, the guy with the one eye, of course, the patch over his eye. And Moshe, meaning Moses, of course, Dayan, or Diane, was able to not only defend Israel from five or six Islamic countries, but he was able to retake the Golden Heights, the West Bank, push the Muslims back into their capitals. If you think about someone like uh, Nasser in uh, Egypt, he was panicking. And uh, Syria being Damascus, Jordan, Amman, Cairo, Riyadh being Saudi Arabia, and of course Cairo, just four countries that come to mind. I think other countries were involved in that catastrophe from the side point or from the aspect of the Jew of the from the aspect or from the perspective of the Muslims they were panicking and the Jews were able to move fast I think for memory it was Yom Kippur when these Mohammedans decided to launch an attack on Israel they thought they would catch the Jews sleeping what a huge mistake that was and Mushai decided to mobilize his men and of course he was able to not only stop the Muslims uh, going further into Israel he's able to reclaim Jerusalem and to this day it, uh, Jerusalem is controlled by the Jews as it should be, of course, and the Muslims are so terrified as to the reality that the Jews could go into Damascus, Cairo, Amman, and Rehad, and it was a real possibility that they got onto the head of the UN, 1967, who got onto the White House, that would be uh, LBJ, and Johnson got on to Tel Aviv and said to Goldemir, was it? Prime Minister Goldemir, the chain-smoking yeah. communist Jew, and of course many Jewish leaders were communists, let's not play that down, yeah. and he said to Goldemir, you need to pull your troops back. Because we can't allow you to go into Riyadh and uh, Amman and Cairo and uh, Damascus and take the entire capitals, all those capitals. They could have done it as well. And Mushai, Dayan said, well, we will keep pushing on until all of, all of our objectives have been met. It was a walk in the park for them. The Jews were outnumbered 10 to 1. They shot down all these Mohammedan planes, Mohammedan tanks. All these Mohammedan soldiers were rounded up. Of course, it wasn't the fault of the uh, Mohammedan soldiers. It was the fault of the Mohammedan leaders the Prime Ministers and Presidents. Psalm 2, look at verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Sore meaning deep displeasure. And here the Lord is speaking to those that are against him. A conspiracy is found. And the word vex means to provoke, to torment, to cause distress. There were panic stations going on. They were panicking in Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and... Uh, Egypt, Nasser had to resign, went to the people, had to uh, try and uh, calm people's feelings. He said, I'm going to resign. I can't go on. This is a huge fiasco. And yet, incredibly, the people said, no, stay on. And he did. But it was a huge disaster. And Mushai, Dayan, was a very famous man and uh, was well-received all over the world. Uh, West Point and uh, uh, Sandhurst, to this day, consider him to be one of the greatest uh, Israeli uh, soldiers. Of course, what people sometimes forget is during the 1950s, many Germans went to Israel, former SS officers who felt bad about what they'd done to the Jews, and they decided to train up Jewish leaders. You think of someone like Mickey Marcus, we discussed him when we went to the book of, uh, book of Exodus, an American Jew, a colonel in the US Army, went to Israel, 1947-48, trained up the Israelis, he would die, 
accidentally in Israel. Uh, Wingate, Ord Wingate, a British general, was working with the Jews during World War II, 1942, 43, training up the Jews to uh, defend themselves. But uh, after World War II, many Germans were really ashamed of themselves. SS officers. Do you know, if you go to Sandhurst and also uh, West Point, not only do they, do they think very highly of Dayan, uh, Mushai Dayan, but they think very highly of uh, people like Rommel, one of Hitler's top uh, generals. And uh, I, forget, I forget it was, one famous American, uh, maybe in Patton or somebody else, and a, a famous American general uh, took a lot of his stuff back to America with him, uh, concerning Rommel, of course. But uh, these German officers went to Israel and they trained up the Israelis. And of course, if you get the old vanguard, the old Waffen SS, Himmler's brigade, and uh, the Gestapo, and uh, top German officers. I mean, to this day, like I say, British historians will study the Third Reich. American historians will study the Third Reich. British officers, American officers, still think very highly of Rommel, and uh, Keitel, and uh, other German uh, commanders. Donitz. The Navy guy, of course, and these Germans went to Israel and they started to work with the Jews. That's not so. That's not so well known. And of course, they they, they taught the Jews how to hold rifles, how to shoot, how to shoot planes down, how to fly planes. So of course, when the Muslims started to invade, 1967, 1973, yep. and of course 1948, they had no chance because the Germans, at the height of their infamy, shall I say, were the best in the world. The best in the world. It took three superpowers, six years to tie down a country the size of Texas, being Germany, of course. But here the word vex, Psalm 2.5, means to provoke, to torment, to distress. The Lord is going to play with unbelieving Jews. He's going to torment unbelieving Jews. But that word vex, if you knock off the V and put an R there, it's Latin for king. Rex. Rex. Latin for king. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, Jehovah speaking, and vex them, unbelieving Jews, in his sore displeasure. People say, well, why do you stand by the Jews? Why do you support the Jews, they say? They say the Jews practice the Kabbalah, which of course they do, and the Jews are into the Talmud, which of course they are, and the Jews are very pro-homosexuality, and of course they are. I think uh, Israel is the most pro-LGBT country in the Middle East, which of course it is. If you go back to the 1940s, all of your movie studios were controlled by the Jews, all of them. MGM, 20th Century Fox, Columbia, RKO, MGM. Disney, of course, was a Gentile, Freemason. In fact, Walt Disney was raised by a Christian family. And yet Walt Disney became a Freemason, very strange man, a very evil man. But you had the five or six studios, yeah. all owned by the Jews. Jack Warner owned uh, Warner Brothers. And every week, those top Jews would meet in a Jewish Masonic temple. All, Ju all, all Jewish Freemasons. And of course, on top of those guys, or at the top of the pyramid, would be the Jesuits. We could spend a whole hour talking about the Jewish studios, the film studios, controlled by the Jesuits. And every movie made from 1930 up until probably the present, when it deals with biblical Christianity, attacks the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and elevates the church of Rome. Interesting, isn't it? But people say, why do you guys support Israel? She's against you. She pushes all this wickedness. A lot of child pornography comes from Israel, apparently. The studios were controlled by uh, Masonic Jews. Yes, that's true. It is all true. But you were told to love the Jew. Paul said they are beloved for their father's sakes. So we don't need to get too uh, overly paranoid about becoming apologists or trying to work out why uh, this or that happens. But from Psalm 2, we can't escape it. Jehovah is speaking. He's got the Jews in a spin and he's going to provoke them. 
Uh, he's going to use. He's going to vex them. That word vexed. I feel vexed today. We still use that word, don't we? My spirit is vexed. I'm in great torments. I'm distressed. And here, one final time, Jehovah speaking, dealing with unbelieving Jews. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, anger, of course, hatred, fury, and vex them, provoke them, torment them in his sore displeasure. And he'll have them in an absolute uh, spin, like I say, unable to come, uh, unable to work out if they're coming or going. So I will say this very finally, that yes, we pray for Israel. You're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You're told to support the Jew. Uh, and if you do, the Lord will bless you. On the other side of the coin, there's always two sides to every coin. Yes, the studios were run by Jews, Masonic Jews. Disney, of course, was a Nazi, a Freemason himself. Jealous that the Jews had a stranglehold over Hollywood. But look at the films that they produced. All pro-Rome. All pro-Rome. So the Jesuits were controlling the Jewish studios, working hand, hand in hand. And yet most people don't think about the Jesuits. They think about the Jews. Throughout the church's history, there's been a lot of problems, of course, between Christendom and Judaism, the Church of Rome, for centuries would persecute the Jews, make them wear yellow bonnets, uh, make them dress up to be identified. Hitler liked the idea of that. And he said, he said basically, I will do what the Church of Rome had done for hundreds of years. And of course, he would make the Jews wear the Star of David around their necks, paint the uh, Star of David on Jewish businesses and homes so the thugs could turn up and smash up homes and properties. It is fair to say that the Christian walks a very fine line when it comes to our relationship with Israel. Very fine line. We don't condone of Israel's behaviour today, concerning some of the stuff I've just discussed, uh, but nor will we take a stand against them. We won't fight them. We won't join forces against them like the Mohammedans did three times during the last 75 years or so. And as I say, when those countries tried to invade Israel, Dayan pushed them back, reclaimed Jerusalem. He said, we will never leave again. And of course, they won't leave again. God wants them back in the land. It's their land. It always was their land. And they will stay put until the King of Kings... The Lord Jesus Christ returns, and we'll pick it up next week in verse 6, which builds on his return, and what he will do when he does return. Please go back to Psalm chapter 1, and look at verse 3 again, if you will, please. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. The Lord wants you to be holy. He wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to continue to grow. He wants you to get people saved. When you meet someone who says they have a faith, but never share it, like a private faith, it's no faith at all. John chapter 4, look at verse 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That is the key, of course. You don't wither. You don't become dry. You don't backslide. If you walk with the Saviour, all things are possible to those that believe. Go back to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2. And Father, we pray for your blessing this morning. We pray you will help us to understand thy words. Thy words are pure words. And we pray for wisdom and guidance to understand, to exegete thy holy scripture. The word of God says how the scripture cannot be broken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we pray for your help and guidance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen. Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Look at verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Keep your hand there and go to 2 Samuel chapter 23. My holy hill today uh, consists of Islam's dome of the rock, which has some anti-Christian uh, inscribed on its walls. Hate speech, basically. And in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, we read, 
some interesting words. One of the reasons how you know, or one of the ways to know that Israel has fallen, is due to the fact that Islam has conquered Jerusalem. The Jews may rule it, govern it, but you've got this huge dome of the rock, smack bang, in the middle of Jerusalem. And of course, when the Messiah returns, he will demolish, he will demolish it. It will be knocked down in probably 24 hours or less. Second Samuel, uh, Second Samuel 23, Second Samuel 23, uh, look at verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That's how it should be. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. And of course, the rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. He that ruleth over men must be just. And of course, temperate, fair, and considerate. Psalm 1, like Cromwell, would uh, be worthy of studying. If you haven't, I suggest you do. King James was also very merciful and compassionate. Uh, Henry VIII, not so. And if you go through the list of kings and queens in Britain, it's a mixed bag. And of course, Henry VIII would be probably the worst. Ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as a tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. It's everlasting because God is everlasting. Ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. So because God is eternal, his covenants are eternal. Because God is eternal, heaven is eternal. Because God is eternal, hell is eternal. But of course man will break or nullify God's commandments. But one more time, 23.3. The God of Israel said, this is King David speaking, The rock of Israel spake to me, Jesus speaking to David, He that ruleth over men must be just, like during a thousand year reign, ruling in the fear of God. And yet the Antichrist doesn't fear God, doesn't even care for women. So it's been suggested that the Antichrist is probably a sodomite, or what do they call these people, uh, asexual, mm -hmm. perhaps, or maybe bisexual. Mm -hmm. But either way, he doesn't fear God, he fears the God of forces. And he should be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as a tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. This is God's ideal king, you understand. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. If you walk with me, if you love me, keep my commandments. Ordered in all things and sure. You can trust it, it's sure, it is certain. For this is all my salvation. Not just everlasting salvation, but practical salvation. Like taking care of one's needs here and now. Or for here and now. And all my desire, although you make it not to grow. Go back to Psalm 2.6 again. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It's already decided. It's been decreed. And once the Lord decides to do something, he will do it. He told Noah to build a boat. He told Lot to get out of town. And once the boat was being built, once uh, Lot got out of town, judgment came. When the Lord comes back, uh, it says over in Luke 18, will there be much faith on the earth? And the answer, of course, is very little. So once God decrees something, you cannot reverse it. You may attempt to reverse it, but it'd be very difficult to do so unless he allows you to reverse it. But if it's a decree, if it's set in stone, as we like to say, you cannot reverse it. If you perish without Christ, you will go to hell forever. But if you die believing in Christ, you will go to heaven forever. Psalm 2, yet have I set my king, my king, not your king, not our king, my king. Technically, Jesus Christ isn't our king. Technically, Jesus Christ isn't our Messiah. Technically, Jesus Christ is Israel's king and Messiah. He is our saviour, and during the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll be king over all of the earth. Of course, we will be ruling with him from New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. But king, per se, 
Uh, that ties back to Israel, Messiah, per se. That also ties back to Messiah. Of course, you can use these terms. But technically speaking, you don't find Paul calling Jesus Christ the king of the church. Or Paul calling the Lord Jesus Christ the Messiah of the church. Such terms, as far as the scripture is concerned, deal with Israel. This is a Jewish book written by Shemites. And God's plan has always been to have his son on the throne, ruling and reigning. There's more in the book about the second coming and thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ than speaking in tongues, miracles, getting saved, going to church, breaking bread. This book is about a king and a kingdom. That's the bottom line at the end of the day. Now, look at 2.7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now we get into some tricky and uh, sensitive uh, areas of scripture when it comes to the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will say this, that I love him and I hope you do. And I believe in him and I hope you do. And I walk with him and I hope you do. And when we speak about him, we tread very carefully. Catholics are very much into their deeds and their beads, uh, rosaries, uh, novenas, uh, the priests and the popes. Mary, they take it incredibly seriously. Uh, pro uh, Protestants, for the most part, are into their uh, catechisms. They're into uh, tulip, reformed theology. The charismatics are very much into speaking in tongues. The Lord spoke to me. He told me A, B, and C, receiving a revelation or two. But for Bible-believing Christians, such as Patrick and I, we take this book incredibly seriously. We love him, he's our best friend, and we want to be very careful and sensitive. So we pray the Lord will give us wisdom as we attempt to try and understand a part of scripture which is so overlooked by so many people. I will declare the decree, the Father speaking, the Lord hath said unto me, the Son speaking. Now David wrote this, Psalm 2, 1000 BC, we established that last Sunday. So this gets very deep, and yet incredibly fascinating. I will declare the decree, the Father speaking like I say. The Lord hath said unto me, Son speaking, Thou art my Son, the Father speaking. This day have I begotten thee. So the word begotten means to procreate, it means to generate. And after last Sunday's service, our brother in Catalonia sent me a very helpful email offering his thoughts about this subject. And he was very right in what he said. Uh, he said basically that God is immutable, which means he doesn't change, which is absolutely so. And of course, Father and Son are titles, along with the Holy Ghost, which is also so. But of course, you've got to keep digging. If we are to be Bible believers, Bible readers, we need to continue to read the scripture. I will declare the decree. You can't break this decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So the word begotten means to procreate, means to generate. In Greek, the word is monogenes. Mono, of course, means one or only one. And genes means a family or a race. One of a kind, one of a family, one of a race. Keep your hand there and go to Genesis chapter 5. There are two views when it comes to the uh, understanding of the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most uh, popular view is eternal sonship, that Christ was declared, affirmed, to be the Son of God in eternity past. The other, the other view is generational sonship, that he became the Son of God in time. There is a third view, which I will share shortly. But let's see what the Word of God says about the term begot, beget. The word begat appears 139 times in your Bible. And of course, begot and begat and beget all the same thing it means to give life to but let's go back to genesis chapter 5 genesis chapter 5 and look at verse 4 if you will and the days of adam after he had begotten seth were 800 
years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So straight away, you're told that Adam was a physical person, obviously. And of course, Jesus Christ is a second Adam. But again, and the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, he had generated Seth from his own loins, were 800 years. And he begat, there's our word again, begat, sons and daughters, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And of course, Cain would marry his sister, as would the other descendants from Adam and Eve. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Go to chapter uh, 17, Genesis 17. So we see straight away that Adam and Eve had children. And of course, the seed comes from the father. And their firstborn, uh, or their first two boys, Adam and Eve, got into an altercation. And of course, you know the rest. One was murdered, and the other was a vagabond and a, fut- a, vagabond and a fugitive. Chapter 17, chapter 17, look up verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee, behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, beget, and I will make him a great nation. Go to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, after Judges, of course. So Adam and Eve had children, uh, and you've just seen Ishmael being begotten, along with uh, many people and a great nation will come from uh, Ishmael Ruth chapter 4 Ruth chapter 4 look at verse 22 and Obed begat Jesse and Jesse begat David go to Matthew chapter 1 Matthew chapter 1 there's no point speculating about the subject of when Christ was begotten what does it mean if you are a bible teacher you have to go to the scripture you have to read the scripture and maybe two or three years ago I studied the subject and I was rather surprised how little information there is about such a fascinating subject. Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 2. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Jump down to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So the word of God makes it very clear that the term begots or begat is in reference to procreating, generating, bringing forth a seed, bringing someone into being. Now there are two spiritual terms uh, that I can think of this morning. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But Genesis is literal. Ruth was literal. Matthew uh, was literal. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is a spiritual reference. Like verse 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Addressed to the elders of the church, when Paul wrote his epistles, just for the record, he wrote to elders per se, not a pastor, but elders per se. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. I warn you, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. A slight exaggeration when it comes to 10,000 instructors but many were probably helping this carnal church grow but the word i am looking at here is how he says the following i have begotten you through the gospel i am your spiritual father you are my spiritual children don't call me father paul and i won't be called father paul but i am your spiritual father go to philemon and i'll give you one more uh philemon before uh the big old book of uh, Hebrews, of course. Uh, Philemon 1, Philemon 1, look at verse 
ten, I beseech thee for my son Oninimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. I have begotten Oninimus or Onesimus in my bonds. I am now his spiritual father. Not physically, of course, but spiritually speaking, of course. So you got two uh, spiritual passages dealing with becoming a child of God, thanks to the Apostle Paul. Paul got them saved, he grew them, and after getting them saved, he was their spiritual father. So, if you get somebody saved, and if you are a brother, you are their spiritual father. It's now down to you to build them up. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So go back to Psalm chapter 2. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, and let's continue to study the subjects of what it means to be a begotten, to bring forth, to produce. But go back to verse 6, 2 6, Psalm 2 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Today, outside of Jerusalem on a hill, like I say, an Islamic mosque sits up there. One day that will be destroyed. The third temple will go on top of that dome of the rock. Historically, the Dome of the Rock, or the uh, location of the Dome of the Rock, would be Solomon's temple, of course. And there are anti-Christian inscriptions all over that monstrosity of a building. I will declare the decree, verse 7. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee. So this was written around 1000 BC. David is speaking, of course. David is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the greater David. Adam is the first man. Christ is the second Adam. Adam and Eve had physical children. The Lord Jesus Christ has spiritual children. The devil has a seed, mentioned over in Genesis chapter 3. The, uh, the, uh, the saviour has a seed, found over in Isaiah 52, 53. The serpent seed is probably spiritual, as is the saviour's. But I want to continue to look at this term. What does it mean to beget, to give life to? Again, begotten, beget, same thing. And the word beget or begot appears 15 times. But the word begat B-E-G-A-T appears 139 times and nearly every single time it concerns something happening in a physical sense. So, two views, eternal sonship, like I say, is held by most people concerning the fact that Christ was eternally decreed to be the Son of God. But of course that is problematic because if this term, this day, doesn't mean this day, then maybe the Genesis account doesn't mean this day. Evening in the morning, first day, evening in the morning, second day, evening in the morning, third day. Evening and the morning, fourth day, evening and the morning, fifth day, evening and the morning, sixth day, so on and so forth. Seventh day, the Lord rested. Maybe that's not to be taken literally. You see, you start to change the word of God around. You start to redefine these passages. You get into a terrible spin. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Maybe that's not literal either. So what's going on? Well, there was a third view, of course. Uh, Jesus Christ is referred to as the son of David. He's coming of age, you see. But in the context, this is speaking about David. But behind David, the greater David, is of course the Lord Jesus Christ. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This day I have begotten you, this day I have generated you. Going back to generational sonship, like in time, contrast that to eternal sonship. If we hold to eternal sonship, that causes a problem. Because if Christ was eternally begotten, what does that mean? Does that even make any sense? If he was eternally begotten... Does that mean that before he was eternally begotten, he wasn't in existence? Does that mean that the father existed before the son was begotten? If he was begotten in time, then who was the son before he was begotten? I will attempt to uh, further elaborate on that. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Son of man, back to Adam. Son of God, back to God. Son of David, back to David. That's pretty clear, isn't it? 
Son of David, he gets that in time, obviously. Uh, son of man, he got that in time. He became the son of man. He was born. He came from the earth via Mary, of course. Son of God, he has no beginning because God has no beginning. John chapter 1. John uh, chapter 1. In fact, keep your hand in John chapter 1. I'm slightly jumping ahead of myself. Uh, go to Second Samuel. and Keep your hand in John chapter 1. Uh, Second Samuel, uh, Second Samuel, chapter seven. There isn't much material when it comes to the sonship of Christ. Uh, the Catholics believe he is the eternal Son of God. The Protestants believe he is the eternal Son of God. Uh, almost every denomination believes he is the eternal Son of God, begotten in eternity, which therefore means he is forever in submission to the Father. There's a problem with that view, of course. Some, not many, some hold to generational sonship that he became the Son of God in time. Before that, he was the word of God, of course. But I'll get to John shortly. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. David was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. The, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 23, of course. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest. I won't leave you nor forsake you. And have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, second advent. And have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Not many people uh, have not heard of the name of Jesus Christ. Most people have heard of Jesus Christ. They may not believe on him or believe in him, but they know who he is. So here, David is being addressed. Uh, addressed but behind David is, of course, the greater David. Moreover... I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. As of right now, they are on a war footing like 24-7. It's been said that the Israeli Air Force can retaliate any targets in the Middle East within four hours of being attacked. They've been attacked five times since 1948. Mm -hmm. They aren't living in peace. They are living in fear. Previous prime ministers have been desperate to make a deal uh, with their hostile neighbours like Iran and Syria and uh, those terrorists in the Gaza Strip. But due to pressure from the UN and previous American governments, they've had to tread very carefully. And as since the time that I command the judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. House of David, house of Moses, house of the Messiah picked up in Hebrews chapter 3. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1. I will get to John shortly. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke uh, chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 32. He shall be great. And shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Go back to uh, Second Samuel 12 again. And when thy days be fulfilled. When you die David. And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. No cremations incidentally. Just burials. I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels, come from your loins, like Adam and Eve and others in the Old Testament. Even Ishmael would give birth to many people. Muhammad 
said he was a seventh from Ishmael, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Partly picturing Solomon, of course, but Jesus Christ is the son of David, as was Solomon, of course. 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, if he walks with me, if he keeps my commandments. Of course, the kings did not. But the promise made back in uh, Luke chapter 1 is very clear. He shall be great, shall be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. When he came the first time, there was no Jewish king on the throne, only Herod, an illegitimate king, and Pontius Pilate, a Gentile, ruling over Israel. Like I say today, although the Jews technically govern Israel, they have split Jerusalem into three halves, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Islamic quarter. And the UN are always putting pressure on the Jews to tread carefully. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. But from First Samuel, make that Second Samuel, Second uh, Samuel uh, seven thirteen. He shall build a house for my name, Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. If he walks with me, of course, but he wouldn't. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. If he commit iniquity like Solomon, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul. Saul would, uh, Saul would lose his kingdom. Solomon didn't, so that was heavily reduced, of course. Whom I put away before thee. So Saul killed himself, but of course behind his suicide, the Lord was ruining him. He was stripping him of, of his authority, of course. But my mercy shall not depart away from me, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Before thee, thy throne shall be established forever. So a quick detour just to reinforce what is going on uh, when it comes to understanding uh, types and shadows. And now go to John chapter 1. So you've got David back in the Old Testament. He has a son, Solomon, of course, born from Bathsheba. But the greater Solomon is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He would say he was greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath. David was a king with a physical kingdom. Christ came the first time, he got a crown of thorns. Second time, he gets a literal golden crown. He came the first time to preach to the people of Israel. They would reject him, put him on a cross. He comes a second time, the Jews will receive him. Moses and Elijah are going to be sent, and they will preach to the Jews. Book of Revelation and a third will turn to the Jewish Messiah. They will believe on him and become his people. They go into the thousand-year reign and, in, and then into eternity. For the thousand years, Christ is on the new earth. Ruling and reigning, with probably David with him, probably Joseph with him, probably Solomon with him, and Abraham certainly, Isaac and Jacob certainly. But that's not the theme of today's message. We are looking at the term, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What does that mean? To beget means to produce. To beget means to bring forth. The vast majority of verses in, in, in the Word of God deal with this in a physical sense. At least two deal in a spiritual sense. And I've got a few more spiritual verses to show you shortly. But let's get to John chapter 1. The term begotten is actually only found in John's writings. And one other person, Plato. Apart from Plato, who was a lost Jew. Uh, a lost pagan, I should say. He wasn't a Jew. He was a lost Gentile philosopher, a Greek philosopher. Apart from Plato, only John uses this term begotten to beget. So let's continue to look at the Word of God and see what we can get from the Word of God. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, 
full of grace and truth. So you go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I read an article maybe two years ago, and I can't find it. I thought about this last night, and I couldn't find it. And it went on the lines of this, that before time, there was only God. And once time began, God would reveal himself as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But Son, per se, is more of a New Testament revelation. But here, it says, in the beginning was the Word. John 1, 1, not the Son. In the beginning, concerning time, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we are given the clear account here that when time began, it was the Word with God, and the Word was God. But how about the Holy Ghost? Back in the Old Testament, when the Holy Ghost is mentioned many, many times, he, he is referred to as the Spirit of God, or God's Spirit, with a lowercase s. Because back in the Old Testament, the Jews didn't realize that the Spirit of God, or God's Spirit, was the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit that would be revealed in the New Testament. Paul says, that Spirit is the Lord. In the beginning, one, one was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh, incarnation and dwelt among us, associated with us. And we, the apostles, disciples, friends and foes, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten, only begotten, monogenes, only begotten of the Father. Your new Bibles say that Jesus Christ is God's Son, one and only Son, and yet doesn't Luke 3 say that Adam was God's Son? Only the King James uses this term, begotten. It may be in the Bishop's Bible, it may be in the Geneva Bible, but all of your new Bibles take the word begotten out. They say Jesus Christ was God's one and only son. What does that mean? One and only son. The angels of God are called the sons of God back in Job chapter 1. Israel is called the son of God. Adam, like I say, is called the son of God. But the term only begotten, monogenes, one and only, alone, stands alone, one of a race, one of a family, God's only son. God has no daughters. God has no grandchildren. He has no parents himself. It's just God and his only begotten Son, and of course the Holy Ghost fulfills the Trinity. Full of grace and truth. So, you think about the term only begotten, you go through church history, you think about someone like John Calvin, and on one occasion John Calvin was preaching in his church, like today, Sunday morning, and I've been to his church, a tiny church, uh, or an average-sized church, I should probably say, to be fair to the old boy, an average-sized church, it looks like a cathedral actually, and in this uh, old property of his, his old, his old building is a tiny chair a very small chair he must have been a very small man john calvin and i was tempted to sit in his chair but didn't i thought it wouldn't be appropriate <laughs> and uh from the outside yeah somewhat ostentatious i won't play it down looks very catholic incidentally uh, but one sunday morning john calvin was preaching like i am this morning and all of a sudden michael servetus walks into the church and of course, Calvin sees Servetus, Servetus sees Calvin. Calvin and Servetus were friends for a long time, wrote many letters back and forth. Servetus was always keen to get uh, Calvin's take on his many writings. He wrote seven commentaries in the Bible, seven books on the Bible. One is in Scotland today, Edinburgh. The others have not survived. And uh, when Calvin saw Servetus, he said, grab that guy, detain him, arrest him. And of course they did. He was, uh, he was held for a period of time and... What makes me laugh sometimes is the uh, the farce of some of these holiness preachers like Calvin. He's preaching Sunday morning on holiness and Servetus breezes in. Of course, he was tricked. He was deceived. It's my belief that enemies of Calvin uh, deceived Servetus, set up Calvin. And he walked into the church as he's preaching on holiness. 
and they say to, uh, Calvin says to his men arrest that man and they do and of course he's held and to cut a long story short he's burnt to death it took three hours to kill him they used green wood and you got Calvin preaching on holiness and he got a guy burning to death mm. outside of his church I mean what a joke and uh, if you remind Calvinists of Calvin's past they don't particularly care for it but Servetus would reject the Trinity would reject uh, infant baptism rightly so but he would also attack the idea that Christ wasn't always the Son of God, that he became the Son of God. And that's what we call a generational sonship. But yet Calvin held to the same belief for a period of time, was called a heretic for it. Calvin, like Servetus, would attack the Trinity. So on one occasion, the Catholics arrested Servetus, held him. He escaped. And when he escaped, they burnt an effigy of him. And yet, in actuality, the Protestants were the ones who killed Servetus, put him to death. And, of course, he died. But Calvin and Servetus were friends. On one occasion, they arranged to meet in France, probably 17 years before the infamous uh, death of Servetus. He was 42 when he died. And I think Calvin was about 55 when he would die. Both Calvin and Servetus were around the same age, both very intellectual, both uh, influential. And Calvin went to France at the time a Catholic country, was waiting for Servetus to arrive. He never arrived. He blew him out. And Calvin never forgot that, held a grudge, you see. Calvin was a very cold man, very cold man, Calvin. And your average Calvinist doesn't want to talk about this, they play it down. But the point is that Calvin murdered Servetus for rejecting the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, ironically, like I say, Calvin would also reject, at the beginning of his ministry, uh, eternal sonship, and would also have a problem with the Trinity. Uh, John chapter 1, look at verse 14 again. And the word was made flesh, incarnation like I say. doesn't say the Son was made flesh. It says how the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten, only begotten. Not the one and only Son, that means nothing. But only begotten means monogenes. It means alone, one alone, only one. From one family, one race, one God. And from that one God comes one Son. Only begotten of the Father, of the Father. He comes from the Father. The Father generates him. Full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 18. No man has seen God at any time like the Father. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So the term begotten returns once again. But no man hath seen God at any time. It has to be the Father, because back in the Old Testament, many people saw glimpses of God. Christophanes, Theophanes. But nobody saw the Father. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son. Only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. Like Adam and Eve. Eve came from the rib of Adam. And here Jesus Christ in the bosom of the Father. Or later on John leans on the breast of Jesus. There's a wonderful picture of intimacy. Bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. John 3.16. The most famous verse in the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, so far, this all makes sense. Time begins, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. God, Elohim. In the beginning, when time began, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, here, capital S, but other places, lowercase, a lowercase s. And the Spirit of God, Holy Ghost, moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's interesting, isn't it? 
When God speaks something into being, it comes into being. You think of technology today, your new televisions, you can speak to them. You can go onto your uh, iPads and say, uh, Google, search such and such. Siri, uh, search such and such. Television, go to channel such and such. And it will respond to your command. It's taken, what, 4,000 years, 5,000 years? Make that 6,000 years to catch up with God. Television, go to such and such. Car, take me to such and such. Google Maps, I'm looking for such and such a place. Take me to such and such a place. And that will take you such an app will take you to such a place finally catching up with the lord but here god is now referring to himself as god but notice what it doesn't say it doesn't say the father it doesn't say in the beginning the father created the heaven and the earth it says in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth like uh, like john chapter one in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god 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 the word not the father not the son so that article that i I found a couple of years ago was very interesting that before time, it was just God. But when time began, God, as we know him today, revealed himself in three persons. One in being, but three in person. And from those three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are revealed. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God, not the Father, although the Father is obviously here, but he's not referred to as the Father here. Middle, middle part of verse 2, and the Spirit of God, Holy Ghost, his own person. You can lie to him, you can grieve him, you can deceive him, you can quench him. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be lights. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let there be light. And there was lights. And God saw the light, type of Christ, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. But uh, John chapter 1 again. And John chapter 3. And I'll close shortly. Starts off by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. No mention of the Father here. No mention of the Spirit here. That comes down the line, of course. And John 3, on top of verse uh, 16, which I'll read one more time. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But verse 18 is where it gets very complicated and very controversial. And those that hold to eternal sonship have a problem with verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. Not Son of Man. Son of God. He that believeth on him is not condemned. That's positive. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Negative. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Son of God was begotten. Not Son of Man. Son of God was begotten. And next week we will continue to tread carefully. As we try to understand what it means to beget. How does God beget his Son? Son of man, not here, son of God. Son of David, yes, concerning his priestly role. But son of God, possibly begotten in time. If he was begotten in eternity, how does that work? Does it even make any sense? If this day from Psalm 2 isn't this day, if that's to be spiritualized, then are we going to spiritualize Genesis? Are we going to spiritualize a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day? Are we going to spiritualize other things like how he is appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath raised from the dead. You see, it gets very difficult if you start to spiritualize words and terms like day or begotten or my only begotten son. But we'll hold it there for this morning and come back next week and try and further dig deep into a much neglected and maligned subject. So last Sunday we looked at uh, Michael Servetus briefly and John Calvin briefly. And of course they started off as being friends 
contemporaries, letters were exchanged, and over a period of time, they became enemies, shall we say, and uh, on one occasion, uh, Calvin's enemies were able to trick Servetus. They set up Calvin, basically, and Servetus went to Geneva, walked into one of Calvin's Sunday services. Calvin froze. Servetus thought he got a nice warm handshake, and of course he was condemned. And the main problem was concerning the Trinity, of course. Servetus thought that the Trinity was a pagan belief, like three gods, which is what the Muslims like to throw in our faces today. He was wrong, of course. He also had an issue with infant baptism, which he was right to uh, flag up. All of your new Bibles, or put it this way, the Alexandrian cults, shall we say, all hold to the eternal sonship of Christ. Whereas the King James Bible-believing movement, almost all of us, lean more towards generational sonship. And yet it's not as clear as that. You've got to study the scriptures to really get deep into the Word of God, to understand the Word of God. And after a period of time, Servetus was put on trial and was basically murdered for being a heretic because he would reject the Trinity, like I say, and he would question, he would question the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin, while he was preaching on a Sunday morning, like today, was preaching holiness, and of course Servetus was burning to death, burnt to a crisp, and I say that because many Calvinists are into the holiness movement. And yet the irony of it all would be that Calvin was doing the work of the Catholics. Because they had tried Servetus, he had escaped their custody. And like I said last Sunday, they burnt an effigy. Uh, and yet Calvin was able to do in practicality or in actuality what the Catholics were unable to do. So keep that in mind, because when it comes to the sonship of Christ, whether generational sonship or the eternal sonship, as far as I can think this morning, Servetus is probably the only main victim who fell foul of the Alexandrian cult. But go back to Psalm 2 again. Look at verse 1. Why do the heathen rage, present tense, and the people imagine a vain thing? From Acts chapter 4, it says, why did, past tense, the heathen rage? So straight away, you are presented with a conspiracy. And here, Psalm 2, written a thousand years before Christ by King David, he's saying, why are the heathen, like right now, raging? And the people imagining a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, like the Father, and against his anointed, his Messiah, his anointed one, his Christos, the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder. And cast away their cords from us. Either God rules you or Satan rules you. If God doesn't rule you and you opt for secular leaders or kings per se, you're going to get tyrants coming along. And that's what broke Samuel's heart back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He said to the Lord on one occasion, they want kings to rule over them. And the Lord said to Samuel, it's not you they are rejecting, it's me. So basically, if you don't want God to rule over you, the devil is going to rule over you. For today, we would say this, that popes want to rule over their people. Politicians, for the most part, want to rule over their people. Apostate church leaders want to rule over their people. Muhammad wanted to rule over his people. Unsaved, heretical Jews wanted to rule over their people. It's either God or the devil, of course. But this conspiracy has been going on for a long time. He that sitteth, verse 4, in the heavens, shall laugh concerning God, of course. The Lord shall have them in derision. Keep your hand there and go to Proverbs Chapter 1, if you were to ask people what they think about God uh, laughing at people in general, they'd be appalled, I'm sure. Most people don't like to think that God would laugh at unsaved people, make fun of unsaved people. The Lord does use sarcasm in both Testaments, of course. Proverbs 1, Proverbs 1, uh, look at verse uh, 23. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I pour out 
My spirits unto you, I'll make known my words unto you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Because I have called, and ye refused, there's your free will, which Calvin didn't believe in, nor did Martin Luther, incidentally. I've stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said at naught, all my counsel, my counsel, my teachings, my statutes, are like zero to you. Going back to we shan't have this man to reign over us. We want kings to rule over us. We don't want the king of glory to rule over us. And here, the Lord is castigating such people. Because I have called, and you refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But you have said at naught, all my counsel, and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. Verse 26. I will mock when your fear cometh. How about that? Uh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. It could be 1945, Treblinka. It could be Dachau. It could be Sachsenhausen. Many Jews went to their deaths, and I watched a documentary last night, a fascinating documentary, a true story about the infamous character called Ivan the Terrible, who was responsible directly for 27,000 deaths at Treblinka, Poland. 1942-1943, and for 40 years he escaped justice. Eventually the Jews caught up with him, and he was extradited from America to Israel. And this is a long story, but I'll just keep it very brief. And he arrived in Israel, 1986. They prosecuted him for war crimes, and he was found guilty initially in 1986. Went to the appeal courts, Israel's Supreme Court, in 1992, and they found him not guilty. They overturned the verdict. He flew back to America, and the American government said, we don't like the idea of this. We think we've got a Nazi living in our midst, and of course they did. And they decided to prosecute him afresh, and they did. Sent him to Munich, Germany, and the Germans got a hold of him, and they put him on trial. They found him guilty, and this time he got seven years in prison. The only problem was he was 91 at the time, in poor health. He died in an old people's home in Munich, where it all began, back in the late 1930s, or make that mid-1930s, Hitler's infamous speeches. And under German law, and here's the irony of it all, under German law, if you are found guilty and you appeal the uh, verdict against you and you die during that appeal process, you are declared not guilty. And he died in an old people's home, unrepentant. That guy was a Catholic, and I'll discuss that much more down the line. My point is this, many Jews went to Treblinka. In total, 850,000 perished. Many of those Jews would be praying to Jehovah, reading the Psalms day and night, and yet this piece of Old Testament scripture isn't for them. The book of Psalms, for the most part, is about a king and a kingdom. And Proverbs 1 pro uh, partly builds on this. When your fear cometh as desolation, 27, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Many Jews gave evidence. They said uh, he butchered our women. He cut their breasts off. He pushed them into ovens. He cut their skin off. He enjoyed it very much. He was part of an SS unit that had a tag under their arm. It was voluntary. And he volunteered to have this tag under his arm. And his young Jewish boys were having to run errands for the Nazis. If you think of Schindler's List, you've got Jews hiding in the sewage. You've got Jews hiding in the walls. You've got Jews hiding in the uh, lofts. You've got Jews hiding here and there like rats, like animals. And the hunters are coming for them. That's found over in the book of Jeremiah. This book, if you don't know the Bible, will blow you to smithereens if you're not careful. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then... Shall they call upon me, 28, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, like concerning the Lord's Messiah, and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel, they despised all my reproof. 
From 70 AD right up until 1945, you've got millions of Jews all over Europe. And when those poor survivors of World War II arrived in Israel, 1945, 1946, they weren't given a hero's welcome. A lot of Jews said, what are you doing here? How did you survive the war? And for many years, those survivors of Treblinka, Dachau, Sachsenhausen, and Auschwitz, another terrible concentration camps run by Roman Catholics, I might add. Ivan the Terrible was a Roman Catholic. And the Jews said to these victims of the Holocaust, these survivors, what are you doing here? It was like a two-tier system for many years. If you think of East and West Germany, same thing. Germany said to those from the East, we don't want you. You are our poorer half, lesser half. It took a long time for them to be incorporated into uh, post-communist Germany. And of course, if Korea ever gets united, it'd be the same sort of a thing. The South will look down the noses at the North. They would none of my counsel, verse 30, they despise all my reproof, therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way. Cannibalism was a problem in Treblinka, Dachau, Sachsenhausen, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Go back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 again. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, almighty God of course. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now in the context, David is speaking, 1000 BC. Acts 4 picks us up around 32, 33 uh, AD. But the conspiracy has been set in stone. We shan't be told what to do. We want to run our own show. We want to be top dog. Calvin was very similar uh, to some of these tyrants that I briefly touched on this morning. And he would run a really tight ship. And poor old Servetus, and I use that word carefully because he was a heretic, an unsaved man. But Servetus thought you get a hero's welcome. A nice big handshake, and of course he was condemned. Burnt to death, it took three hours to burn Servetus for rejecting the eternal sonship of Christ and the triune nature of Almighty God, of course. But here, verse 4, this is going to cover the entire period of mankind. It'll go from the Old Testament into the New, right up until the end of the Church Age. In fact, it could even go into the thousand-year reign, because people are going to be born during the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will die, uh, many of them without Christ. Their parents may be saved, but that doesn't mean that they will be saved. Uh, verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, God speaking unto them in his wrath, in his anger, and vex them, like to stress them, in his sore displeasure, in his deep displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I have done it, past tense. I have set my king, note that, upon my holy hill of Zion, like Jerusalem. And like I said last Sunday, today, if you go to Jerusalem, uh, the Dome of the Rock, which oversees all of Jerusalem, will one day uh, be the location, we believe, of the Third Temple. And as of right now, the Muslims control a good number or a good area of Jerusalem. But when Christ returns, he will control all of Israel. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Libya, Syria, Iran, all of the Gulf states, all of Europe, of course. He will would, he would take the whole world. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. If you have an NASV in your NASV. They change this or they use the term only begotten God. From John 1 18. But in the King James which we looked at last week. It says only begotten son. But they say no only begotten God. So you've got a God begetting a God. That's two gods isn't it? That's the error that the Jehovah's Witnesses fall into. They have two Jehovah's. Two gods. Not two persons, or one in being, three in person, which we hold to as Trinitarians. But no, they have two gods. One God being a big God, and one God being a little God. And they make an absolute disaster 
of the scripture. And of course they too fall into the Alexandrian cults. I will declare the decree. Verse 7. The Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my son. This day. This day. This day. Have I begotten thee. Go to Acts chapter 13. The word begat. B-E-G-A-T. Appears 139 times in your Bible. And I gave you a handful of verses last Sunday. To show you what that meant. And I gave you a couple from 1 Corinthians 4. And uh, Philemon 1. To show you what it means in a spiritual sense. But in Acts uh, chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, Dr. Luke also picks up this language. Thou art my son, my only begotten son. Your new Bibles take the word begotten out, which means uh, in Greek, or in Greek it is uh, monogenes, which means to procreate, to generate. They take it out and they say, my one and only son, which tells you nothing. Uh, because like I said last week, we are the sons of God. John chapter 1, to as many as received him. To them gave you power to become the sons of God. So we are sons of God, right? Adam is called the son of God from uh, Luke chapter 3. Satan and the angels are called sons of God from Job chapter 1. And of course Israel is called uh, the Lord's son. Like Ephraim and even David is, called, is referred to as God's son. But of course Jesus is his only begotten son. God gave birth to Jesus via the Virgin Mary of course. Acts 13, Acts 13. Look at verse 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, good news, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. Their children. And of course Paul is speaking. In that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it's also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. But of course 33 is very interesting. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Like in you, like back to life, like being the first fruits uh, of those that come up from the dead. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And 32, one last time, or one final time. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. He wasn't raised from the dead more than once, he was raised afresh. Like I say, he came back to life basically. As it is also written in the second psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Go to Hebrews uh, chapter 1. So the two main schools of thoughts would be that Christ was begotten in eternity past. Uh, at a time of the Father's choosing, Christ was begotten. They call that eternal sonship. And all of your Alexandrian people hold to that view. I mean all of them. Uh, John MacArthur for a long period of time held to generational sonship. And he got fed up with being criticised for that. And he crossed the streets. He now holds to the eternal sonship of Christ. And for that to take place, you have to spiritualise this day. You have to spiritualise the word begotten or beget. And you have to also uh, go back to other parts of the Old Testament and reinterpret what that means. And if you do that, you have Christ eternally begotten, uh, which makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, grammatically, it makes no sense. But even if you were to hold such a position, what does that mean? How do you eternally beget someone? What does that mean? Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 5. But unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. John 3.18 says Christ is the only begotten son of God, not son of man, son of God. And again from John 1.18, the only begotten son of God, building on John 3.18, but the NASV one of the most popular crap versions out there, says that God begat to God. How do you begat to God? 
How does God give birth to a God? You need to ask those people such a question. But unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? Well, never, of course. And yet, in the Quran, Adam was to be worshipped. The angels were to worship Adam. And yet Adam is just a created being. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? And again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, read it carefully. When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That took place in time. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That took place in time, not before time. And again, verse 6, when he bringeth in the first begotten, monogonis, one of a kind, one of a race, born in Bethlehem, a population of around 800, and out of a population of around 800, Son of God was born, they followed the star from the east, the star took them to the house, they fell down and worshipped the newborn babe, Mary was given, God Almighty to carry, God manifest in the flesh. He saith, let all the angels of God worship him. Angels worship Jesus, the second Adam, not the first Adam. So there is a additional verse to look at. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 5. There's a third view, of course, dealing with David's Davidic kingdom. Because David would write Psalm 2, we can't ignore the fact that David is partly in the picture. But of course, the greater David is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, look at verse 5. It's also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This book is a circle. It starts with Melchizedek, Genesis. It progresses to a tabernacle. And it concludes with Melchizedek, 5556. Five, and it concludes with a tabernacle, Revelation chapter 13. One more time, 55. Five. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They put a spear through his side. Blood and water came out. He had to carry his cross around the streets of Jerusalem. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, present tense, today, today. But that can't be literal, they say. That has to be spiritualized. It's not today, like denoting a day. It's today, like in a spiritual sense. That makes no sense at all. But every scholar from the Alexandrian cults will hold to such a belief, including John Calvin. Yet John Calvin began... As an Aryan, he said Christ was a created being. That's what the JWs hold to. And he too, like Servetus, would, would uh, attack the Trinity. And that's why Servetus was close to Calvin. Because the, at the beginning of their correspondence, they were basically on the same page. And Calvin felt the pressure, as did MacArthur and Calvin, like MacArthur, crossed the street. But Calvin is still a heretic, as is MacArthur, and I'll come to that shortly. Thou art my son, my only begotten son, my only son, my unique son, very God, very man. I will share my glory with you. But I won't share it with anybody else. As he saith also in another place. Thou art a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. One more. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. So generational sonship. Just one more time. Makes the argument that Christ became the son of God in time. Before he became the son of God in time. He was the word of God. Micah 5 says he's from everlasting to old. Uh, you've got accounts back in the Old Testament. Like Proverbs 30. Daniel chapter 3, or you think of that account back in uh, uh, Genesis 32, when Jacob was wrestling with the angel, and he would say to the angel, what is your name? And he wouldn't tell him, of course. But later on, the angel of the Lord is revealed to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, look at verse 17. 
by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now it's spiritual. Abraham had two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was from Hagar, the Egyptian. Isaac was, of course, from Sarah. Isaac is a promised seed. Going back to the seed of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. Contrast that to the seed of the Saviour. Genesis chapter 3. Abraham had two sons at the beginning of his life. And his only begotten son, verse 17, concerns Isaac, of course. Like a one-off, because the seed will come through him. Later in Abraham's life, he had other children, sons and daughters, to the concubines. But here, the only term, or the term only begotten, is now used in a different sense. What you never want to do is take, or do what's called a word study. You find one word in the Bible, and you use the meaning for that word in every single verse in Scripture. That's the worst way to interpret the Bible. The verse has to uh, define the context for you. Scripture with Scripture. By faith, Abraham. By faith. The just shall live by faith. By faith, for by grace are you saved through faith. By faith, no works involved. By faith, Abraham father of many nations, when he was tried, tested, offered up Isaac, and he would, he put him on an altar, start the altar burning, got the knife out, and he would have gone all the way, incidentally, he would have killed his son, I believe it, knowing that Isaac could have been, and would have been resurrected, but that's real faith, isn't it, could you do that to your children, some of your parents, could you sacrifice one of your kids, or could you sacrifice one of your parents, would you be prepared to do so, makes you think, doesn't it, uh, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only, only begotten son. So clearly in the context, this is dealing with Isaac, uh, in the sense of him being a one-off, prestigious, uh, somebody unique, dealing with his standing. Uh, going back to King David, being the greatest of Jesse's sons, and he was the youngest of Jesse's sons. The preeminence, that's the word I'm looking for, the preeminence of Jesse's sons. And of course, Jesus is the preeminence when it comes to being God's only begotten son. But Isaac was Abraham's preeminent son. Go to First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given life to us. He's given us life from the dead. Again, in the, ten, in the sense of being made alive. We're not physical descendants of God. We're not physical descendants from Jesus. We're not physical uh, brothers and sisters of Jesus, of course. Jesus had no wife, had no children. But in a spiritual sense, we are the children of God. And of course, Jesus, in a spiritual sense, is our older brother. And during the thousand-year reign, he will be Israel's everlasting father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to the abundant mercy hath begotten us again, unto a lively hope, a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Go to First John 4, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, look at verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world. That we might live through him. People today say this. that they, they say they are living through their favourite celebrity. I've heard many people over the years say they are living through such and such a person. And when such and such a person dies, they die. It's sad, isn't it? But people got to believe in something or someone. Right? That butcher uh, from uh, Treblinka. 
Lived in America for 45 years, had a wife and children, grandchildren. They thought the world of the guy. Was able to live in Cleveland, Ohio. Was a blue-collar worker, a papist, a Roman Catholic. Went to Mass every day. He was Ukrainian, so he went to the Ukrainian wing of Catholicism, but it's the same thing, basically. He was living his life through the Church of Rome, was very happy. And then one day, are you Ivan the Terrible? And he said, no, I'm not. And as he said, no, I'm not, he did a, a head shake and a head nod. So quick, subliminal. I thought, you liar. And like I say, he was, he was put on a plane, went to Israel. Some harrowing accounts were given as to what he did to those poor people in Treblinka. And of course, Poland, Catholic country, we believe that that death camp was built on church property. The Church of Rome owns most of the world. I'm sure you know that. The Church of Rome to this day own most of Israel. I'm sure you know that. They own most of America, like the, the, uh, the East Coast of America. They own most of New York, Washington, Maryland. Uh, the Jesuits especially control most of America. That's why every American president, going back to probably Woodrow Wilson, even before him perhaps, all bow down to the Church of Rome. You won't find any American presidents, I mean any American president, condemning Roman Catholicism. They wouldn't dare do so. 4-9 again. And this was manifested, declared, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only, only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. We live through him. We live and breathe. What would he say? Without me, you can do nothing. First uh, John 5, First John 5. Look at verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now it's used in a spiritual sense. You've got to tread so carefully with this book. We are begotten in a spiritual sense. We are sons and daughters of the Lord in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense, of course. Whosoever believeth, there's a word again, believeth, has faith, believeth that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, is born of God, born of God. The new birth comes from God, not from man, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but of God. The new birth, the source of the new birth comes from God. And everyone, everyone that loveth him, that begat, loveth him also, that is begotten of him. Jump down to verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, be that is begotten of God, keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. The unsaved people haven't got this hope, the saved have, but the unsaved have not. And if you are saved, the wicked one, being the devil, is unable to touch you, unable to get his hands on you. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Because this isn't a particularly, a particularly clear subject, I shan't be dogmatic, but I will be honest with you and say that at times it seems to me that the doctrine of, of uh, generational sonship makes more sense than the eternal sonship of Christ. But that's a tough one. And I won't, be, uh, I won't be put on the spots if I was to be challenged on this. I'll just read the verses and hope the Holy Ghost does the rest. Revelation 1, Revelation 1, look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. He comes up out of the tomb. He conquers death. He's the first one to die and come up from the dead. Uh, to never die again. Of course, Lazarus would die again. Uh, the boy from Nain would die again. Uh, the little girl, Talithakumi, will die again, would die again. All of those that were resurrected by the Lord of the Apostles would die again. But Christ comes up to never die again. You understand, of course. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Look at 7 again. I will declare the decree. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. 
If this is in reference to David, you've got a problem because obviously he's writing this. He's alive. He's been the king for a period of time. He was the youngest, like I say, of Jesse's sons. He's already got his kingdom. Of course, over time, his, his son, being Solomon, would lose the kingdom. And Israel and Judah would be split. You'd have Israel and Judah, two entities within Israel, if you will, due to Solomon's sin. So yes, partly David is in the picture, but Christ is, of course, the greatest or the greater David. So we can say this, and we will say this, that part of this verse deals with Christ's uh, Davidic throne, his kingdom. And one day he will govern the nations, he will control everything and everyone, but for now he's reigning in a spiritual sense. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Ask of me, Father speaking, and I shall give thee, the son, the heathen, the church, that's us. For thine inheritance, but it's not just the church, thousand year reign. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Keep your hand there and go to Second Samuel. Second Samuel. He came the first time as the uh, suffering saviour, son of Joseph. Was mocked, was despised, was put on a cross like I say. He got a crown in, uh, instead of a, uh, he got a cross instead of a crown. And they put a robe on him. But one day he will receive a physical robe, a physical gold crown, and they will bow down and worship him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second Samuel 22, Second Samuel 22, look at verse 44. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people, David speaking. Thou hast kept me to be head of the heathen, a people which I knew not shall serve me. So David is partly in the picture like Psalm 2, but the greater David is ultimately in the picture. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people, the Jews. Thou hast kept me to be head of the heathen. Head of the heathen? Was David head of the heathen? I don't think so. But Jesus Christ is head of the church. A people which I knew not shall serve me. The church. For now, but one day, the millennial reign. Go to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Uh, look at verse 17. His name shall endure forever. Absolutely. You put the TV on. You put the radio on. You go online. You read the newspapers. Jesus this, Jesus that. JC this, JC that. He's not called Emmanuel, is he? But he will during the thousand year reign. His name shall endure forever. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. His name shall be continued as long as a son. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Who only doeth wondrous things. One more time. His name shall endure forever. Because God is forever. The word of God is eternal. God is eternal. And yet, what did I say last week? Before time began, you've got God. When time began, God would reveal himself as Father, Son and Spirit. But of course, Son, the Son, even back in the Old Testament, wasn't clearly revealed. What is the name of the Son of God? Proverbs 30, no answer given. Nebuchadnezzar says there's one like the Son of God in the in the fire, in the den, with uh, Daniel's friends. But he's not revealed until the New Testament. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as a son. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations, not now they're not. All nations for now are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most nations have no time for him. Nine countries to this day ban the Bible. Nine countries. But one day all nations shall call him blessed. Not yet, but they will one day. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. Go back to Revelation 11. Revelation, this time 11, Revelation 11. 
There's more in the Bible about a king and a kingdom than your new birth. Church attendance, tithing, baptisms, even soul winning. The main theme of this book is about a king and a kingdom. And I gave you that verse from Luke 1 last week, how he shall reign forever and ever over the uh, house of Jacob, being Israel, of course. And that's why if you are a Christian, you've got to be pro-Israel. Yesterday I asked Patrick a question. I said to him, do you think some of these historians uh, like David Icke and other... Irving. Irving, excuse me, like David Irving, David Icke, yeah. Uh, but David Irving and other famous authors... Infamous or uh, Beaver. What's his first name? Beaver. Anthony. Anthony Beaver. Cornwall. Cornwall. Some great historians. Yeah. Beaver, expert on the on the, on uh, the Soviet Union, on Russia. Irving on the Third Reich, yeah. and other people. Peter de Rose, a Catholic, of course. But people like Irving and uh, Beaver, top British brains. I mean, they really are British, uh, great British brains. Both lost, of course, but they know their history very well. Irving, Third Reich, like I say, Beaver, Soviet Union. I said to Patrick yesterday, I said, do you think these guys have ever read the Bible all the way through? And he said, probably not. And I think that's probably so. Because if you read this book, like Ivan the Terrible did not, you couldn't help but see that the Jews are a special group of people. Greatly blessed, untouchable, and if they sin, and they will sin, God will chastise them, don't worry about that. But for the Christian, for those that love history, for those that read the book, how can you read this book and not be pro the Jew? I mean, look at Paul, for example. A Roman Jew, a Jewish Roman, had a uh, decent background. His parents sent him to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel. And he studied. He could have been one of the greatest rabbis uh, in Israel had he not become a Christian. Of course, from our perspective, he was a great rabbi. The greatest, of course, after Christ, you understand. And Paul goes to uh, Jerusalem, gets his doctorate, if you will, an expert in the law. Was whipped 139 times. I think he says that from Second Corinthians had scars and markings all over his body. I mean, if you saw him, you'd probably coil. When that guy was in Israel, 86, a victim came forward, a guy called Rosenberg, and he said, I saw you in Treblinka. I saw what you did to my people. And he got close up to uh, Ivan the Terrible. I forget his uh, English name. John somebody. Denesovich. Denesovich, thank you. And he said, you are Ivan the Terrible. And he wanted to spit in his face. He couldn't, of course. And that two-way... Uh, Bit of drama, was fascinating to watch. And I thought, had that butcher from Treblinka read his Bible, he would have coiled himself. What are we doing here? Mm. What are we doing? Persecuting the Jews. They're God's people. Uh, Revelation 11, Revelation 11. There's a lot more to that story, which I'll discuss maybe in a future study. I don't know. Revelation 11, Revelation 11. Look at verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. Tribulation. Middle part. And there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms... Of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Kingdoms plural, like governments. Not kingdoms singular, but uh, kingdoms plural. And he, Jesus Christ, shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Not yet, they're not. You can't preach this on the streets in uh, the Middle East. You can't preach on the streets of uh, China or Cuba or most countries for that matter. In this country, if you say certain things, you go to prison. A couple of years ago, I saw a clip online. A street preacher went to Hyde Park. We've been there, Speaker's Corner. And he said to the police officer, if I preach against homosexuality, what will happen? Now, Speaker's Corner is supposed to be the only place in this country where you have freedom of speech. supposed to be. And the officer said, well, if I get a complaint, I may have to arrest you. I thought, wow, you can't even say something which will offend a tiny minority of people. So this guy went into the park, chose his words very carefully, but now the kingdoms of this world are not 
the Lord's, but there will be one day. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, past, present and future, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned, past tense. This has already happened as far as Revelation is concerned and yet as far as we are concerned, this is still to happen. All the nations and all the nations were angry, going back to Psalm 2, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name. What is your name? Secrets. I won't tell you. He shall be called Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and them, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testaments, and there was lightnings and voices and thunderings and a great earthquake, and an earthquake and great hail. Again, it's circular, but it starts with Melchizedek. Christ is of the order of Melchizedek. It starts with the tabernacle, Ark of the Covenants, and it ends as it began one more time. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, tabernacle, third heaven, opened in heaven. Christ is the door. He's made a way. He's the gate to heaven, the ladder, Jacob's ladder, if you will. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, ark of the covenants. It's not on the earth or under the earth, it's in heaven. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great, great, great hail. Jump over to chapter 12, chapter 12, look at verse 5. And she brought forth a man child, Israel, and also partly Mary. Mary was a daughter of Israel, but Israel is a nation that brought forth the man child. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. One day he will, but not at present. And her child was caught up unto God, ascension, and to his throne. So right now he's seated next to his father, but one day he'll be seated on a physical throne on the earth for 1,000 years. One final time. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And a child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And of course, when this takes place, the nations will kick against it. 11.18, and uh, as they are kicking against it, 11.18 and 11.18, there is joy in heaven. 11.15, 11.16, and what is taking place up in the third heaven, 11.19, is a sign of great joy. Go back to Psalm 2, one final time, and we will close. Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm. And like I said at the beginning of this message, it starts off with why do, present tense, the heathen rage, kick against it. Princes, uh, politicians, popes, Mohammedans, unsaved people, and the people imagine a vain thing. Imagine light, a like to plots to do something which is going to be vain, in which will be worthless, basically empty. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder. And cast away their cords from us. We want to be free. Do our own thing. Yet who is really free? Who is really free? Are you free? Are your kids really free? Your kids go to school, don't they? They're told what time to arrive, aren't they? They're told what to wear, aren't they? They're told what time lunch is, aren't they? They're told what time to go home, aren't they? I'm sure they are. You go to work. You're told what time to arrive, aren't you? You're told what to wear, aren't you? You're told what time to go to lunch, aren't you? You're told what time to go home, aren't you? You want to get a car. You're told how to get how, uh, how to get a car. In this country, you can't drive until you're 17. 
not 16, not 15, but 17. And when you, when you pass the age of 70, you have regular checkups to make sure you're still fit, uh, fit and healthy, able to drive. You're not free. You want to go on a holiday this year? Where's your passports? If your passport is less than six months uh, left on it, you can't fly overseas. And if your passport is over 10 years old, you can't fly overseas. You have to play by the rules, of course. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Biblical times, church age, tribulation especially, thousand year reign also. The Lord shall have them in derision. He'll mock them, have them in uh, a spin. He'll scorn them, absolute contempt. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It will take place whether you like it or not. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Has to be in time, not before time, and yet the majority of scholars will go against uh, such a statement, like the majority of scholars go against the King James Bible. They hold to the Alexandrian cults. Eight, one last time on our close. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, the Gentiles, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. One day he will get everything. And I gave you the verses from Revelation 11, Revelation 12. But for now, we are living in the church age. As of right now, the world is against the Lord and his anointed. But one day, the world will be in submission to the Lord and his anointed. Next week, I will return to look at this subject one more time. So we are working through Psalm 2, the second Psalm. And just to briefly recap, the book of Psalms are written over a period of around a thousand years by seven or eight authors. David is the most prominent out of all of the authors. And Psalm 2 is fascinating to look at because it deals with the incarnation. It deals with David and, of course, Christ being a greater David. Last week we talked about the Apostle Paul, and I didn't finish making my point that he was hounded, would be whipped 195 times by the unbelieving Jews, was left for dead on at least two occasions, and he said the Jew was greatly beloved. You are to pray for the Jew, and I say that because every so often we have to deal with Israel and the church, we have to go the extra mile. We have to turn the other cheek. And yes, I know that your average Hasidic Jew thinks very little of us. They see us as idolaters because we worship the image of God. And of course, the image of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be more gracious, more graceful to them. They may think little of us, but that's immaterial. So the Apostle Paul was able to forgive and forget. If the Apostle Paul was able to love the Jew and tell us to do the same after being whipped almost 200 times, scarred, beaten, shipwrecked, looked like a hobo. If he was able to love the Jew, so are you. Go back to Acts chapter 13. We looked at Acts chapter 13 last week and there's always more material to preach on. And from Acts uh, chapter 13, we looked at verses, I think it was 32 and 33 from memory. I'll get in a couple of minutes. My Bible is a very old Bible over 100 years old and I use this because it has the dating uh, inside of the middle margin like the year this book was written all of your new Bibles have taken out the dating system like AD uh, 33, AD 40 or AD 800 uh, I'll make that BC, uh, BC 800 not AD 800, BC <laughs> 800 they've taken it out because they don't believe in a young earth some years ago we went to a debate in liverpool two guys got up uh, one was a creationist one was a darwinist a theistic evolutionist they call such people one was arguing for the young earth one was arguing for the old earth and these two guys got up interesting debates back in 05 from memory mm -hmm. and the argument was basically that god would use evolution to bring life uh, into being that's a farce that's a fudge 
We don't hold to that. We believe that evolution is false. It is fraudulent. We hold to creation. So that's why all of your new Bibles have taken out James Usher's dating system. Because they don't hold to a young earth. Going back to the Alexandrian cult, which for the most part also ejects a young earth. A lot of your Alexandrian cult people, your celebrity Christians, do not hold to a young earth. Acts 13, look at verse 32 again, please. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. In that, he hath raised up Jesus again, brought him back to life, as it is written, also in the second psalm, Psalm 2. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So some people, some of your King James people, go to Romans chapter 1, say that Jesus was begotten at the resurrection. I don't believe that. When he first arrived... One of the first things he would say to people was how he was the son of man. He would call himself the son of man 80 times and the son of God 40 times. The term and title son of David is the least used out of the three. But for three and a half years while he walked on the earth, he called himself the son of God. And people called him a son of God. He'd have people to worship him. He would say the father and I are one. So I don't hold to the belief that Christ became the son of God at the resurrection. And we will discuss that further this morning. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Old Testament, of course, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David. Going back to David writing for himself, but of course he's writing for the greater David. Which was made of the seed of David. Christ's biological mother was Mary, who was traced right back to David. Who was made... Of the seed of David, according to the flesh, son of man, son of God, son of David. But here, concerning his physical lineage, traced back to David by his mother, of course. And declared, verse 4, to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So you see where these people come from, don't you? They say, well, there you are. You see, Paul just told you he was declared to be the son of God at the resurrection. That doesn't mean he was only declared to be the son of God at the resurrection, it means that when he was raised from the dead, it was further evidence that he was the son of God. And yes, this will be a very forensic study. Uh, go back to the book of Psalms. I take my time working through Psalms, or any book for that matter, and I've been reading the word of God every day uh, for 18 years now, trying to get deeper into the word of God. I don't take these words lightly. I take the book very seriously. We go back to Psalm 2, verse 1 again, just to remind ourselves what we are looking at. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing, a worthless thing, something which is empty. Disregard it, basically. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. They see God as a taskmaster, like the EU, like the UN, like NATO. Governors, leaders of the world today, they see God as a tyrant, as a wicked uh, ruler, like the uh, Jews would experience when they were under the kosh of the Egyptians. But it's like this, really. You say you live in a Christian country, or you say you are blessed to have Christian leaders. When was the last time your Christian leader got up and said, even so come Lord Jesus? How about never? We have politicians in this country which occasionally mention God. And it may be the same in your country, but I've never heard a Christian politician ever get up before the cameras and say, come back, Lord Jesus. We need you. We can't handle this. We are a loss. We are in a state of spin without you. We need you to come back and take care of our needs. No country prays for that. No leader prays for that. 
if you go back to 2008, the last major US general election, a guy called Obama stood, and uh, he was able to raise $2 billion to put him into office, $2 billion to give him a job which paid, what, half a million dollars? He wants the power. He won't pray for Jesus to come back and take control of the, uh, the world stage. He wants it for himself, as do all leaders. I think the last general election in this country cost around 50, made 100 million pounds. Yeah. 100 million pounds yeah. to give a guy a job which pays, what, a quarter of a million pounds? He's not going to say, come back, Lord Jesus. No government <clears throat> wants Jesus to come back. So here, the kings of the earth, verse 2, rulers take counsel, plotting and planning against the Lord, there's your father, and against his anointed, there's a son, the Christos, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We want to be free, do our own thing, and nobody is free. Not really. And if you think you are, you are deluding yourself. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. God will laugh at such nonsense, such ridiculous uh, behavior and rhetoric. The Lord shall have them in derision, like contempt, like mocking and scorning them. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, in his anger, and vex them, vex them, like cause them to be distressed, in his sore displeasure, deep displeasure. Yet, here we go, six, yet, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It's already happened. Took place in the mind of the Lord before time, no doubt, and yet we will discuss time. We will try and attempt to explain eternity this morning, and we will once again try and profile what it means to beget someone or something. But here, 2.6, my king being David, but the greater David being Christ, of course, upon my holy hill of Zion, like uh, the where the Dome of the Rock today is in Jerusalem, Israel's most prominent hill. And again, that shows you how the Jew has failed, how the Jew has been cast out temporarily from the Lord's service, shall we say. And if you go to Jerusalem today, it's split into three sections. The Jewish quarter, the so-called Christian quarter, and the Islamic quarter. Of course, Israel are over all of Israel. They govern all of Jerusalem, but they allow the Muslims to govern the Dome of the Rock. If you go back to when Sharon was in office, Prime Minister Sharon, on one occasion he went to the Dome of the Rock, maybe 15 years ago or so, caused a riot. The police had to come in, had to escort him in and out of his own city because the Mohammedans didn't want him going into their parts of Jerusalem. And of course, you got the area where they believe that Christ was resurrected, which is great for the tourists, of course. Go to Acts chapter 2. I got a few text messages from a good brother after the service uh, last week in the Far East. He was asking me about David and how does this all work, being a type of Christ. It is a difficult subject, so we'll, I will uh, grant you that. Not easy, of course. When David speaks for himself, he speaks for two people. Acts chapter 2. And I was reading this a few nights ago, and I thought this may help our dear brother and many others. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 25. For David speaketh concerning him. Concerning who? The Lord, of course. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Jesus Christ he's referring to, of course. For he is on my right hand. Jesus Christ is the Father's right hand man. That I should not be moved. So David saw Jesus. Abraham would see Jesus as well. So David saw Jesus. Abraham would see Jesus as well. When he was offer up Isaac back in Genesis of course therefore did my heart rejoice positive and my tongue was glad positive moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope positive if you die in Christ of course because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell and yet David did go to hell upon death anyone who died before Christ went to hell Luke 16 Abraham's bosom but of course he's not just speaking about himself he's speaking about the greater David 
because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. But of course David went into the ground, Abraham's bosom, called hell. Luke 16. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Well, David wasn't God's holy one, but Messiah was. Again, double application. David speaking for himself, but he's speaking for the greater David, being Christ, of course. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. David speaking, and yet Christ would say he would see his father work. And when the father was working, he would work. Double application, you can't miss it, can you? Men and brethren, 29. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, Peter was speaking, of course, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day, like Muhammad, like all of your popes, like Mary. She's dead and buried. Could be in Ephesus, we believe, based on tradition. We can't be dogmatic about it. But she wasn't bodily assumed into heaven. Pope Pius IX had a mental health problem. Pope Pius XII had a mental health problem. Pope Pius IX was seeing uh, visions, if you will, was experiencing hallucinations. Pope Pius XII was having injections into his rear, into his backside, like uh, sheep fetuses to keep him afloat. These are two powerful popes. Both had mental health problems. They're dead and buried. Every pope, going back to what, Sylvester? There's your first official pope. It's all buried, all dead and buried in Rome. And uh, you go to Rome today, you can visit your so-called Holy Father. But here, the context is dealing with the greater David, of course. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. He was at that time. And his sepulchre is with us unto this day. It, it uh, still is to this day, somewhat. Uh, 2,000 years on, when this was written. Therefore being a prophet, I know that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. If you get a chance, read Jeremiah 22 sometime. No time for that this morning. But read Jeremiah 22 sometime to see how the virgin birth would really be used by the Lord, how he would, uh, how he would uh, bypass Israel's last king to bring forth the virgin-born king of kings. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, and his certainly was not. Neither his flesh to see corruption, and his certainly was not. Whereas David's did see corruption. When someone or something dies, corruption sets in, right? David was dead for a long time when he wrote this, or when he was being quoted as saying this. But of course Christ would be the exception of course. Of course, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. Again, Christ is the Lord's right hand man. And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. He has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens. Well, not when this was being spoken about. And yet what Peter didn't know as he was saying this was that David was in heaven. Because Christ went into the ground and set captivity captive. Which Paul told you about. In Ephesians chapter 4, but Peter, around 33 AD, according to my reference Bible here, wasn't made aware of that. We call this progressive revelation. No one person has all of the uh, light. No one person knows everything. So, historically speaking, yes, Peter was correct when he said this, how David was not ascended into the heavens like when he died. And yet, as of speaking this, he's been in heaven for maybe a few days, a few weeks, if you get your dating of the Bible correct. And according to this, this is around 30 AD. So he's been in heaven for a good while because Christ goes into the ground upon death, takes captivity captive back to heaven uh, back to heaven with him. Again, you wouldn't know this if you don't read the Bible. And if you are a town atheist, you may say there's a contradiction here. There's no contradiction. 
You just got to keep studying the word of God to understand it, of course. One more time, for David is not ascended into the heavens, plural, but he saith himself, the Lord, said unto my Lord, for an oriental, for a Shemite to call his son Lord, for a father to call his son Lord was, would be unthinkable. You may call your husband Lord. Abraham and Sarah are highlighted in First Peter uh, for doing that. And back in First Peter, uh, Sarah would call Abraham her Lord. But you won't find a man, a father, calling his son Lord. Unthinkable. You wouldn't find a king like David calling Solomon his son Lord. But David would call Christ Lord because Christ is a greater David. For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Jehovah said unto Jehovah, the Father said unto the Son, you understand, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Put your feet up, my dear son, you've conquered death, you've tasted death for everyone. Put your feet up, use the world as your footstool, if you will. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Go back to Psalm 2. So that's one example of David speaking first and foremost for himself, but he's speaking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, there are so many examples of that throughout the word of God. So go back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, look at verse 8 again. Ask of me, Father speaking to the Son. But he's speaking to David, but he's speaking to the Son. Double application. Ask of me, ask of me, and I shall give thee, the heathen, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Not just a church age, but the millennial state, going into eternity, of course. 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the potter has power over the clay. That's always a favourite passage that the Calvinists like to use. But of course, the potter and the clay both are used, or both come together in time. For example, there was no clay before time. Again, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. If we throw out the term this day, then we throw out creation. We throw out the six-day creation, which is what those two guys in Liverpool did back in 05. They're both arguing over the six-day creation. And the theistic evolutionist, an Anglican by the name of Pennington, from memory, he's probably dead now, was arguing that evolution is acceptable. God used evolution. And you say, why would he say that? It's because he wants to fit in with both camps. He wants to fit in with the evolutionary world and the so-called Christian world. He wants to continue to be paid by the state church and be accepted by his evolutionary uh, friends. Canning Pennington. Canning Pennington, that's the guy. He wants to walk both sides of the streets. There's many like him. But if you say this day doesn't mean this day, then throw out creation, throw out uh, the judgment seat, throw out any other day that appears in scripture. And if the term begot, begat, it doesn't mean what it means. Throw it out as well. Uh, maybe Adam didn't beget children. Maybe uh, Adam wasn't a real person. I heard a sermon week before last, three-hour sermon, fascinating sermon, about a Catholic priest putting out a publication, what Catholics are meant to believe. That's the name of the book he wrote. And a well-known Protestant was going through this guy's book, just shredding it to pieces. I mean, it's pitiful. And this paper said basically this, that Adam wasn't really a person. Adam came from uh, the ground, primate. He evolved up from the slime, and he became somebody who we think was Adam. But he wasn't a person per se. He came up from the slime. He was an animal. And of course, if you follow that through logically, well, if that's the case, how about original sin? Does it make any sense? Well, it can't make any sense. If Adam wasn't a literal person, if he didn't literally fall, if he came up from the slime, if he evolved up through the slime, which is what this paper was arguing, basically, theistic evolution again, then you haven't got original sin. 
And if, that is, if, if that's the case, why baptize your children? Why join the Church of Rome if there's no original sin? Why go to communion? Why take the sacraments if there's no original sin? You see, the, the Church of Rome, I'll get back to this in a minute, the Church of Rome has shot themselves in the foot, really. They've become so ecumenical, they've bent over backwards so many times that they stand for nothing anymore. And your average Catholic getting up in years now, who's been through the system 50, 60, 70 years, doesn't know they're coming or going. But the Church of Rome today hold to what's called Omega Points, a Jesuit term. They're all journeying together towards Omega Points, and your average Catholic knows, no, knows nothing about it. Yeah. You don't believe me? Ask your husband sometime. Ask your wife sometime. Ask your mother or father sometime. Ask anybody who you know is Catholic, what is Omega Points? They've got no idea what you're talking about. But the Jesuits do. All marching together to that Omega Point, and of course that is hell, fire, forever, of course. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, concerning those that would oppose the Messiah. Thou shalt dash them in pieces, like a potter's vessel. Again, the potter has power over the clay, but get the context straight. There's no clay before time. Before you and I were physically here, we were nowhere. Somebody once said this, there was a time when we did not exist, but there'll be a time when we will never cease to exist. Terrifying, isn't it, to be not saved? Uh, go to Second Peter. Your average Catholic has no idea what they are a part of. In fact, if you speak to non-Catholics, they will say, well, the Church of Rome are losing numbers every day. Your average church is empty. And of course, they focus on ecclesiastical Babylon, but never economical Babylon. There are two aspects to the Church of Rome, people. It's not just uh, church attendees or people in the pews. It's the financial side of it. Why do you think world leaders go to the Vatican on a regular basis? They're not going to look at Psalm 2. They're not going to get the Pope's exegesis on, uh, what did I say, Second uh, Peter. They're going to talk money, money. They're going to talk about business. They're talking about the Vatican Bank. They're talking about investments. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, Second Peter chapter 2, Second Peter chapter 2. And of course the Church of Rome want to keep non-Catholics in the dark just as much as practicing Catholics. But again, speak to your Catholic friends and family and say to them, you are an expert in your church. You go every Sunday, I, I, I guess, I assume. Ask them what they think about Amiga Point. They've got no idea what they what that means. Or speak about creation to them. And ask them, if Adam wasn't a literal person, how do you explain original sin? If the creation account isn't to be taken literal, why hold to any of what your church teaches you? And you see that Catholic get really uh, tied up like he's wearing a straitjacket. Second uh, Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two. Look at verse one. But there were false prophets also among the people. Old Testament, of course. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, like today, who privily, privately, shall bring in damnable heresies, damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. I like to use this to show our Calvinist friends that limited atonement is an abomination. In fact, some years ago, I was speaking to a couple of Calvinist friends, quote-unquote, in our town. I wish I could have recorded it. It would have made for a good recording. And we spent 25 minutes arguing, arguing over this one verse. And I had one who was a pastor, the other was an elder. And I had these two guys both backed up into a corner. And I said, you both hold two limited atonements, a blasphemy, which is never really uh, spoken about, never really condemned by uh, non-Calvinists. And I said, you two guys both hold to a limited atonement. You have carved up the blood of Christ. And I said, but this one verse here says he died for those that would deny him. And they couldn't answer it because they can't. His blood was shed for everyone and everything, even for the devil, even for the demons. It says in Matthew 13, he paid for the sins of the world. He, he purchased the entire field. The entire field in Matthew 13 is the world. He would call Judas my friend. 
When he came to uh, betray Christ, he would say, friend, comest thou? Friend, you're told in the Gospel of John he died for his friends. He died for Judas. He died for the devil. He died for the world. He died for everyone and everything. But you've got to believe on him to be saved. People say, well, that's a universal atonement. Yes, it is, but not universal salvation. There is a difference, you understand. You have to appropriate the atonement. And of course, the devil uh, certainly cannot be redeemed. But his fall was covered by the blood of Christ when he purchased the field. Uh, two, two, a many, not some, many, shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Omega point, theistic evolution, modern Bibles, Alexandrian cult, you can't trust the King James, they say. You need to go for one of these new Bibles, like the ESV, and yet in the ESV, they have removed thousands of verses. If you get hold of uh, an NIV sometime, go to Acts chapter 8 sometime, I think from memory, it's verse 36 or 37 or 38, you'll find it missing in your NIV. How about that? You're reading through uh, Acts 8 in your NIV, and it goes from verse 36 to 38. Skips an entire verse. And people don't even know what's going on. What's going on here? You know, how could that be possible? You go to John chapter 8, you've got the New King James, you've got the uh, NASV, you've got the ESV, you've got the Message Bible, you've got the uh, Jerusalem Bible, for example. They have a footnote saying, this isn't in the oldest manuscripts. John chapter 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. James White said he wouldn't even preach on James on John 8, verses 1 to 7 or 8. That entire section in John chapter 8, he wouldn't preach on. And yet that shows how grace works. That shows the master at work. And yet White won't preach it because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And of course, he misses out on a blessing, as does his audience. Just two examples that come to my mind. Three. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Go back to Psalm 2. So, in the Old Testament, he will deal with his enemies, those that come against him, those that plot and plan to overthrow him. It could be the Illuminati, it could be the Bilderbergers, it could be the Club of Rome, it could be uh, Bohemian Grove, it could be the EU, it could be NATO, it could be the UN, whoever left out. Any other groups I've left out? There's quite a few there. Jesuits. Jesuits, of course. Church of Rome. Uh, the ecumenical movement. The interfaith movements. All have one purpose. No king, but we want the kingdom. We call this uh, post-millennialism, basically. Post-millennialism. Bring in the kingdom, but no king. And that's why if you go to a church, or if you are part of a movement, and it's ecumenical, it's political, chances are they are trying to bring in the kingdom. Trilateral Commission, CFR, yeah. all these groups. Yeah. I think uh, Rick Warren is part of the CFR movements. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All these groups coming together to claim this world. And of course, you know, as of right now, that this world is being run by the devil. He's called the God, lowercase g, of this world. Second Corinthians chapter 4. That's God's permissive will. But let's stay on track. Psalm 2, 6, uh, I mean, 2, 9 again. Psalm 2, 9 again. Thou, singular. And a seed God. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. He will destroy them. Second advent. Thou, singular, shalt dash them in pieces. Like a potter's vessel. Smash the vessel into thousand pieces or so. And of course this will cover uh, what will take place at the second advent. But look at verse 10. A slight switch now. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. So... God's gracious offer to mankind, kings first and foremost, has been offered, of course, but mutinous mankind is always offered 
a chance of forgiveness. God's goodness, God's grace. They're plotting and planning, going back to Psalm 2, 2 and 3. In fact, going back to Psalm 2, 1. And yet, by verse 10, be wise. Now, therefore, O ye kings, leaders, princes, prime ministers, preachers, priests, presidents, politicians, people in authority, be wise. Now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed. I like that. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. I'm speaking now. You be quiet. It's my turn to speak, you understand. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I like that as well. Go to uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. There's two sides to every coin. You've got, for example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That, of course, is one side of the coin. And yet, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. The pride of life uh, is not of God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1. God is love. God is love. Our God is a consuming fire. Your average preacher has no idea how to harmonize the two. It's pitiful. Going back to David being a type of Christ. He speaks, and yet who is he speaking for? He's speaking for the greater Christ. David speaks for himself, but he speaks for the greater David. Going back to Psalm 2 and also Psalm 4. I made that, excuse me, Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. We just looked at Acts 2 and last week we looked at Acts chapter 4. But look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verse 18 specifically. Come now, positive, and let us reason together, saith the Lord, positive, that your sins be as scarlet, negative. They should be as white as snow, positive, though they be red like crimson, negative. They shall be as wool, positive. So your sin is like blood red. But if you allow the Lord, he will wash you white. He will make you white. He will clean you up. White as wool, basically. One more time. Come now. Appropriate the atonements, if you will. Come now. And let us reason together, saith the Lord. Going back to Psalm chapter 2. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, you rulers of the earth, you rulers of the world. Come now. And let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Go to Matthew chapter 11, scripture with scripture. The Lord isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And therefore, it's a job of Christians, all of us, to get the gospel out as and when we can. We are a royal priesthood, and uh, we should be leaving tracks out on our travels, and our Patrick does. We should be speaking to people as and when possible, and we both do. We should be speaking to friends and family when possible, and those that we don't even know. Uh, Because once a person dies without Christ, they go to hell forever. No two ways about it. When was the last time you heard a priest say that, or a pope say that? How about never? I've given you a few examples of politicians who never pray for Christ to return. Even so, come Lord Jesus, they won't say that. They wouldn't dare say that. It's a vote loser. But let's not just blame politicians. How about priests and uh, pastors and religious people? When was the last time your priest, if you are a Catholic, called on the Lord to come back and deal with this wicked world? How about never? Or your average pastor, he's too busy counting his money. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. But the last prayer in Revelation is even so come, Lord Jesus. Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Look at 28. Come unto me. It's almost word for word. Come unto me, Christ speaking. All ye that labour and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. If you think about the Genesis accounts, which the Church of Rome liked to make fun of. In fact, four popes said uh, evolution 
quote-unquote, was more than a hypothesis, close quote. Mm-hmm. Going back to Pius XII, right up until, right up until John Paul II, more than, more than, a, more than a, a, a hypothesis, like it's got something to it. And you've got Catholics all over the world going to church today. Some of these are middle-class Catholics, educated, queuing up, bowing down, praying to statues, and yet their own church believe in evolution. Amiga point. And these Catholics think they're going to go to heaven because they are doing their deeds and their beads, praying to Mary, praying to their statues, praying to this or that saint, and the Church of Rome are laughing at them. I saw an article last month about the Knights of Columbus. They were able to raise $100 million to bail out churches in parts of America. $100 million. And you foolish Catholics are tithing to your church. Some of you Catholics have got dead relatives. You've been praying, uh, you've been paying priests for years to release your dead relatives and you're lying in the pockets of your parish priests. There was a story I heard a while ago. A lady went to Mass for 25 years, 26 years and her husband had long been dead and she was paying her priest for a good 20 years or so money to release him from purgatory. And after a while she got somewhat impatient and she'd given thousands over 20 odd years and she said to the parish priest, her father, have you got a moment? And he said, yes, how can I help you? And she said to him, uh, my husband has been dead for over 20 years now and I've been giving you money for prayers to be said to release him from purgatory. Uh, could you find out the Pope? Because he's God's man on earth, right? And can you ask the Pope if he's out of purgatory yet? She wasn't being sarcastic. She wasn't being facetious. She was quite innocent, quite naive, really. And the priest looked at her, and she looked at the priest, and he thought, what in the world am I a part of? This poor woman, up in her 70s, had been giving money to this priest for 20 plus years, thousands of dollars, American for memory. And all she was asking the priest was, can you find out if you're still in purgatory? It's been over 20 years. Can you get onto the Holy See and ask the good man at Rome whether or not my husband is out of purgatory? That shook the priest. And you know what? He left the church of Rome. After that, he resigned the office of the priesthood, which isn't even found in scripture, of course. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden. Going back to the earth being cursed. Thorns and thistles would the earth bring forth. What would Christ, what would Christ wear? A crown of thorns. You see, he paid for the curse of the... He paid for everything. When the, when the uh, creation went into collapse back in uh, the garden, when God said to Adam and Eve, you'll bring forth sweats, your wife's desire will be for your man, your husband to rule over you. Your sweats, the earth will uh, bring forth its fruit, but it'll be a, a hard slog. Basically, it'll be a tough uh, situation for you to have to go through. When he said that back in Genesis, and it speaks about thorns and thistles that the earth would uh, bring forth, uh, slightly paraphrasing here, but that was a picture, a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's in Genesis chapter 3, uh, 17. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, uh, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed, there's our word, cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow. Shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Christ will wear a crown of thorns. He paid for everyone and everything. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. You have to work to survive, basically. What Paul say, if you don't work, you don't eat. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now the evolutionary like this, the evolutionists like this. Your average Darwinist will like that. He will say, there you are, you see, you came from the earth. Mother Earth produced you. You evolved over billions of years. You came from the slime. 
And yet somebody once said, what's more difficult to believe? Woman coming from man or man coming from a rock? One more time, Matthew 8, 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, like from the curse of the earth. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Souls like a person, not your inner soul, obviously. Sometimes the word soul or souls is used to picture a person's triune being, body, soul, and spirit. Tripartisan is the word that the theologians like to use. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Go back to Psalm chapter 2. Three names come to my mind. Three powerful people like Aristotle, Anarsis, Elvis Presley, and... Uh, Hugh Hefner and these three guys made a lot of money, were very popular, very powerful. Someone like uh, Aristotle Anarsis owned half of the world, made an absolute fortune in his day. And yet, towards the end of his life, he had a health problem. And I often think about someone like him coming to the Lord. He didn't, of course. He was Greek Orthodox from memory. Mm. And I think of someone like him who gains the whole world and loses his own soul. And towards, uh, towards the end of his life, he couldn't swallow. He couldn't blink. Now think about this for a few moments. You're worth, let's say, 20 billion. He wanted to buy barley back in the 1960s. That's how uh, ambitious he was. Women all over the place. He got uh, Maria Callis pregnant. She had an abortion, of course, by him. Married Jackie Kennedy. Didn't last very long, of course. And here's a guy who has the whole world at his feet, literally. Little guy from Greece. And towards the end of his life, he couldn't swallow. Couldn't swallow. He couldn't blink. All the top consultants were flown out to his island. How can we help you, Mr. Onassis? They couldn't help the guy. I mean, it's just horrific, isn't it? Do you think of someone like uh, Hugh Hefner? Hugh Hefner, the guy who put Playboy together, destroyed thousands of men, maybe millions of men, and many more wi uh, women into the, into the porn industry, pornography, what do they call it? The adult industry. And old Hugh Hefner made a packet out of pushing pornography. And yet what wasn't so well known is that towards the end of his life, he was impotent. Talk about irony. And he's still keeping up this persona, this image of himself being a playboy, surrounded by beautiful women, a lot younger than him. Here's a thought for you. Imagine you are a wealthy man, super wealthy, and you've got these people all around you. You will never know if those people love you for who you are or what you are. Anarsis wasn't a fool. He knew that Jackie Kennedy and Maria Callas didn't love him for who he was, but for, who, uh, for what he was. They married his money. And that's always something which people have to think about, isn't it? You've got friends, hangers-on, as they say, but they want your money. They don't care about you per se. And you got someone like Hugh Hefner, impotence, and he's pushing this lifestyle, which goes against scripture, absolutely. Elvis Presley, towards the end of his life, would be wearing diapers. We call those things nappies. A grown man, overeating, uh, size of a bus, basically, and he's wearing diapers. And he's sending his private jet 400 miles every day to pick up his favorite hot dogs to be flown back to Graceland. No exaggeration. Well, those three guys should have come to the Lord to get rest for their sorrows. As far as you know, a Hefner died in his sins. A Narciss died in his sins. I know something that Elvis was saved. Uh, there was a preacher whose name escapes me who knew Elvis personally. And he did a sermon, Eight Reasons Why Elvis Is In Heaven Today. I hope he's right. I hope he's right. I don't know if he is or not. I don't know. But the point is all those guys had the world and they all turned down the Lord Jesus Christ as far as I can tell uh, based on their legacies and are burning today in hell. Uh, Psalm 2.11 again. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Go back to Isaiah, but this time Isaiah uh, 66. Isaiah 60, 
6. The idols of this world, after a while, mean nothing to you. All of your super wealthy men or super wealthy women may have the world at their feet now. They may have beautiful husbands or beautiful wives or beautiful boyfriends or beautiful girlfriends. But again, they will never know for sure, deep, deep down, whether or not their spouses love them for who they are or what they are. And they'll all die and leave it all behind. Isaiah 66, look at verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne. Singular, third heaven. Going back to Acts 2, make the world your footstool. But here, the heaven singular being a third heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Building on Acts 2, like I say. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is a place of my rest? It all belongs to me anyway. That's what an artist thought. That's what uh, Elvis Presley thought. He owned half of... Uh, Graceland, which is Tennessee, from memory. Yeah. Memphis, Tennessee, I think from memory. And you had, uh, Hugh Hefner owned uh, a mansion or two in Beverly Hills, was it, New York? And he says, it's all mine anyway. Look at verse 2. For those things hath mine hand made. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let there be light, and there was light. For those things hath mine hand made. Christ is the Lord's right hand man. And all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth, trembleth, trembleth at my word. Do you tremble at the word of the Lord? I started a few Sundays ago trying to explain the difference between the Alexandrian cult and those of us which hold the King James Bible and the Alexandrian cult don't believe in a perfect Bible. They say, well, you've got... Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus and Sinaiticus are the most reliable, quote-unquote. All of your scholars believe this. They all believe it, all of them. And all those guys hold to what's called eternal sonship, that Christ was eternally begotten. How that works is beyond me, but they say that in eternity past, he was begotten. Which doesn't really help anyone, because that still suggests that the Father was before the Son. But Christ will say, the Father and I are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Christ will allow people to bow down and worship him. But in the mind of the Alexandrian cult, they say Christ was eternally begotten. That makes no sense grammatically or even theologically, but they hold to it. And that same crowd, which teach eternal sonship, also hold to the Alexandrian cult, how the King James is a good old book, but it's full of flaws, basically. But here, but to this man, 66, 2, will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, comma, and trembleth, at my word. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Do you tremble at his word? Do you take his word seriously? Do you water it down? That uh, debate we went to, like I say, back in 2005. You got a creationist by the name of uh, McKay or Mackay uh, from Australia. Putting up a good argument for the young earth. And Pennington putting up a poor argument. A well rehearsed argument for evolution. Theistic evolution they call it which the Church of Rome holds to. And I thought, to get to that belief, you've got to change the words of God, or you spiritualise them. That's what they do. All of your Alexandrian cult uh, pastors, I mean all of them, when they hit a tricky passage, they spiritualise it. They can't understand it. Philippians 2, Philippians 2, look at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, good start, my beloved, this crowd is saved. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. That puts me to shame. I don't always obey the Lord. Do you always obey the Lord? I don't know anybody who always obeys the Lord, but this crowd did. 
But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All of your conditional security people like to run to this piece of scripture and say, there you are, you see. You've got to work for your salvation. You've got to work it out. If you don't work it out, you can lose it. And when they say that, they rob the Lord of his deity. We are saved by believing in a person, not a profession. We are saved by believing in what he did for us, not on what we do for him. We are saved by trusting in his sacrifice, not our own. Salvation is found in Christ, not church. But again, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, your own salvation. Is Christ your saviour? I mean your saviour, not somebody else's. Is he your saviour? Your average Catholic has no idea what I'm talking about. Your average Protestant has no idea what I'm talking about. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Look at verse 13, which always gets left out. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'll give you one more. Go to chapter 1 of this epistle. Philippians 1, look at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He has begun it. He will complete it. He will perform it. Why? Because 13 again, God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Go back to Psalm 2. So salvation obviously is of the Lord. And yes, you are to work out your own salvation. You are to make your calling and election sure. You are to make sure you haven't believed in vain. You are to make sure that Christ is your saviour. You're not his saviour. He died for you. You don't die for him. We call this substitutionary atonement. And yet a lot of people call this auto-soldierism. And basically auto-soldierism, a bit of a mouthful I know, but auto-soldierism is a term, a belief made up by many people that if you are a good person, if you go to church, keep the Ten Commandments, uh, go to Mass, for example, uh, pray the Novena, do your deeds and your beads, uh, pray the Hail Mary, uh, and tithe, of course, always tithe, always give money, uh, like that woman. Father, how many, uh, how many years has it been now? 20 years since my husband died? Surely he's in heaven now, Father, surely. And that poor parish priest couldn't answer her. And of course, you realise the farce of purgatory but the uh, belief that you can get to heaven basically by being a good person will just destroy you, ruin you. Uh, Psalm 2, look at uh, 11 again. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's what he wants. This book is about a king and a kingdom. And I said this last Sunday that if you take the time to look at all of the verses about the thousand year reign, there are 500 verses, 500 verses in the Old Testament about a king and a kingdom. Those verses haven't yet come to pass. Now you were told from Luke chapter 1, he shall be great, and he was. He shall be called the son of the highest, and he was. And he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever, and he will do. But not yet. One day he will, but not yet. He would say to Pilate, my kingdom is not yet, or my kingdom is not now of this world. That word now has been taken out of the new Bibles. So you've got a new Bible, it will say, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. And that knocks out the thousand year reign of Christ. But the AV says, my kingdom is not now of this world. So the main theme of this book isn't about getting people saved, isn't about going to church, isn't about being a good soul-winning, Bible-believing expositor, or what have you. The main theme of this book is about a king and a kingdom. That's all God is interested in. My hill, my holy hill, verse 6, I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. In his mind, it's already taken place. Partly picturing David, like I said last week, but ultimately, the greater David, being the Lord Jesus Christ, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me this day, this day have I begotten thee. 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So, two views, one last time. Generational sonship, that he became the son of God in time, at the incarnation. Before then he was the word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, monogenes, full of grace and truth, or you go for the only begotten God doctrine, which is what the NASV would say, that God begots, God begat a God. Ridiculous. Two gods, God begats a God. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses hold to. Two gods? No, there's only one God. One God, one in being, three in person. But again, before time, it's just God. When time begins, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. But if you push me, I will say this, that my head holds to generational sonship, but my heart holds to eternal sonship. But either way, both of those views are still difficult to really comprehend. Eternal sonship doesn't really mean anything. You can't eternally beget someone. And even if you were to eternally beget someone, that means that the father still predates the son. Which means the son will always be under the father. Which means the son will always be in submission to the father. Generational sonship says that the son temporarily is under the father, but not forever. And of course, son of David, his priestly uh, term, also plays a part in helping us to understand the three uh, parts of the Lord's uh, office, nature, conduct, so on and so forth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 11. Kiss the Son. I like that. Verse 12. Judas, like I say, would come to Jesus. John 18 is it. And he would say uh, to Judas, whom, uh, whom seek ye? And they would say to Jesus, the temple guards, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And they all fell backwards. Hundreds of them, perhaps. And the charismatics said, there you are, you see, slain in the spirits. And they used John 18 to justify slain in the spirits. But of course, John 18 is dealing with the enemies of the Lord. Enemies of the Lord. There are no friends present. Uh, he says to Judas, friend, uh, whence comest thou? Friend. He lays his life down for his friends. He loved his own unto the end. I won't spend any more time on the atonement. But you see where I'm going with this. It all links in together. Kiss the sun. This is a uh, Hebrew idiom. Worship the sun. The son of God. Spoken of many times back in the Old Testament. I read it to some last week. Kiss the sun. Why? Lest he be angry. And he perish from the way. There is a way which seemeth right unto man, but the ways thereof, the ends thereof, are the ways of death. You may think you are right. You may say, well, in my heart, I know that I'm doing the right thing. What do the Mormons say? Do you get that burning sensation in your bosom? They always like to ask people that. Does your heart burn? Do you feel a warm sensation? If not, pray to Heavenly Father. Don't trust your heart. What would Jeremiah say? Your heart's desperately wicked. You can't trust your heart. Hebrew says it's uh, full of uh, poison basically. Your heart is filthy. Paul would say, O wretched man that I am, present tense, in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And that's why people go to hell, basically, because they think they are good, trusting in their church, trusting in their works, etc, etc, etc. And as a result, they're going to perish. Kiss the Son, worship him, submit to him, make him your Lord and Saviour. He already is anyway, but do it his way, not your way. Bring every thought captive to him, every imagination captive to him. Surrender to him. Pick up your cross each and every day and walk with him. That's what discipleship is. Not salvation, but it's discipleship. You want to be happy? You want to be joyful? You want to make your life really count? Pick up your cross each and every day. Put him first, not yourself. Is it easy? No, it's very difficult. Will it cost you something? Yes, it will cost you probably everything. I heard a sermon a while ago, a good sermon, and it was a bit of a stretch, but it made the point. At the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, like take the knee. And this guy said this. He said uh, he knew this preacher gave a message in the church and he said every time I go out and about and I hear people blaspheme in the name of Jesus I go down on my knees 
that's not what it means from Philippians 2, but it's good for him to say that, and it was good for him to make that point. And he said, people look shocked. When I'm in a, an environment, and people start to take the name of the Lord in vain, I stop what I'm doing, and I go down on my knees. I think, what's going on with this guy? Has he lost his mind? And of course, he can get, off, uh, get up from his knees and say, no, I'm, I'm worshipping Jesus. You mention Jesus, of course, they're blaspheming him, but as you are uh, mentioning my Lord, I will go down on my knees. And of course, it opened up for a witness opportunity. But that's not what it means in Philippians 2. That's a picture of the last judgment, great white throne, when the devil goes down in his knees before he goes to hell forever. Anarsis, probably, uh, Hefner, definitely, Elvis, perhaps, and anybody else who you care to mention. If the name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, off to hell they go forever. One more time, verse 12. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Hebrew idiom means to worship the sun. Kiss the sun. Worship the sun. What would he say to uh, the apostles? You call me Master and Lord? And so I am. What would Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Down he goes on his knees. That wonderful account from uh, John 9. When he uh, heals the blind man. And he says to him. Do you believe in the Son of God? He says yes I believe. And the blind man goes down in his knees. And he worships the Son of God. The Father and I are one. One in essence. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Yes but Christ isn't the Father. The Father isn't the Son. Jesus Christ is the image of God. Going back to my earlier points. We pray for the Jews. We stand with Israel. Paul told you to love the Jews. They see us as idolaters. And they won't give us much love. They won't give us the time of day. Your average Hasidic Jew wouldn't even spit on you. If you were on fire. And that's the truth. They think of you as nothing. And the Muslims aren't much better either. But that's not the point. The point is that we are to love them. We are to go the extra mile. We are to put them. Not first obviously. But we are to love the Lord our God. Lord thy God with all our hearts, mind, soul and strength and then love our neighbours as ourselves with the hope and purpose of getting these people saved kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are all they that put their trust in him trust, faith, the just shall live by faith it's always been that way go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I was sent an email a few days ago uh, from a brother about the term begotten, monogenes. And he said this to me, he said uh, he'd done some of his own research and he went to John Nelson Darby's Bible and Darby's Bible has the word begotten twice as many times as it does in the King James Bible, interesting that. And I went online, looked at the word begot, beget, and he's right, it was, you know, he, what he said was correct. Uh, Darby has it more than the AV. And I checked John Wesley's commentary and uh, Patrick Henry's as well. And of course they both hold to eternal sonship. Well they will do of course. The majority of people hold to eternal sonship. But if you press them to explain it to you. They can't explain it to you. Because once you eternally beget someone. They will be forever uh, eternally begotten. They'll be eternally in submission to the one that begat them. And one really difficult verse. Which will leave you in a bit of a spin I'm sure. But it's worth reading. It's found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Like verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, we are in Christ right now, those of us which are saved. Wherever he is, we are. Wherever he goes, we go. Thousand year reign, we are in New Jerusalem. He's on the new earth. And they'll come to him, the nations. They will bring their gifts to him. Going back to 500 verses dealing with a king and a kingdom. As he's on his throne, on the new earth with the patriarchs and David especially and probably Joseph and Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel and good old Jonah. 
and all the other guys. We will be with him. We will be observing him because we are in Christ. That's a deep subject just to ponder for a few moments. We are in Christ. But here, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, end of time, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So, in a way that I don't quite understand, when time began, God would reveal himself as Father, Son and Spirit. The Son would be the one in submission to the Father. The Spirit testifies of the Son. You don't pray to the Spirit per se. You don't speak to the Spirit per se. You pray to the Father in the name of the Son. And when time began, slowly but surely, the Son was given more, uh, or he was revealed more and more. But when time began, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, now he's really come of age, and he's come to do his Father's will. He would call himself the Son of Man, the Suffering Saviour, a Suffering Servant, and also Suffering Saviour. But of course, Son of God puts him back to God Almighty. And for his time on the earth, he was in submission to his Father. So when time ends, the Son is now subject unto his Father. He goes back into the Trinity. And of course, God has always been a Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But when time began, they were revealed. But when time concludes, they go back to how they were before time began. So one final time. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So it starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And it ends with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Bible is a circle. It's like a jigsaw. starts off, like I say, with just God. Time begins, Father, Son, and Spirit is revealed. For a period of time, the Son is in submission to the Father. But he's not forever in submission to his Father. He's not going to be eternally the servants of his Father, only for a period of time. Church age, to some extent, he's in heaven now, interceding for us. Thousand year reign, he's rolling and reigning at last, praise the Lord. And then off we go into eternity, and then time is no more. At that point, it goes back to how it used to be, before time began.